Welcome to episode 18 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs. My name is Kevin Goldstein. I'm in DeKalb, Illinois. And our guest host this week, oh, I'm so excited about this one. Uh, we've pulled him out of the shadows. He was a well-known person and he's gone to the shadows. We've pulled him out. He uh, spent about 12 years as a beat writer, I want to say. Did the Orioles, did the Yankees, did the Mets. Then went to the Athletic to do the Yankees, became a national writer with the Athletic, and currently holds the title of Deputy Managing Editor, comma, Talent Development, and joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Cedar Grove, New Jersey, it's Mark Carrick. Mark, how are you? KG, what's going on? I'm enjoying semi-retirement. Things are great. <laughs> are you, do you, you're not semi-retired. You're working every day. Come on. <laughs> no. You know, here's the thing. You grind on the beat. And then you cover ball for so long, um, you know, it, everything by comparison is going to feel like semi-retirement, <laughs> you know, like the, it's a, it's a meat grinder, right? Like, I don't have to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I, when I run into people, you know, over the last, whatever, six months who, who still work for a team, they ask me how it's going. And I was, and I, I my first answer is always lifestyle is way better. And they'll mm-hmm. go, oh, I bet. Jesus. Yeah. You know, yep. and, and uh, lifestyle is way better, isn't it? Dude, this is like um, Shawshank, but better, you know, when you're out of it, but you do know how to adjust back. Like it's... <laughs> you're on the beach in Mexico? Yeah, not well, I'm, I'm working on it, but like, uh, no, man, it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff I miss about covering the sport every day. Um, but uh, one of the things I don't miss is the uh, constant pressure. Dude, I had the ass today for the first time in months. <laughs> What happened? Well, I mean, like I was dropping my kid off and they closed the road unannounced and it made me almost really late for this, which I was looking forward to. And so I was getting pissed and I'm just like, dang, like this is the first like real hardcore baseball related thing I've done in like months. And it gave me the ass like already. So I was like, I'm, I'm getting back into it quickly. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I see you don't travel anymore. Nah, man. Nah. I, you know what? Like I haven't since. Dude, the last major league ballpark that I was in was 2019 game five of the World Series in Washington. I went to a major league baseball game this week. Um, Whoa. And it was my first game since game seven of the 2019 World Series. Oh, my goodness. 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 It was very strange. Where were you? Were you at Wrigley or, Comi- or at uh, uh, whatever they call Comiskey Park now? I actually drove up to Milwaukee. Ooh, which is which one. is which is really about the same for me. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was very weird. It was it was weird. It was mixed emotions. It was a little strange. It, and it's funny, like the stuff, like we we're you know when you work in baseball, you're just so spoiled. And um, like you're just kind of driving around, going, oh, oh, I'm parking with the normies. Okay, this is this is cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is fine. Uh, 
with the normies dude what what's it been like for you i've been i've been meaning to ask in what what, way how's civilian life man like do you still consume this game somewhat similarly to how you've been doing it the last my goodness, how long were you on the other side there? Like more than a decade or about a decade? It was eight yeah. years, yeah. Yeah, so it was eight years, man. Like, so is it more or less the same? Do you find it different? Because I know for me it's really different, and I did not um, expect that. Yeah, I definitely consume things differently now um, than I did eight years ago. Um, I was – it's interesting because obviously, you know, when I was working for a team, I was um, primarily using internal tools, uh-huh. and I've been – you know, actually kind of pleasantly surprised by the external tools that are out there for the public um, in terms of like data and stat cast and video and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that I didn't even realize were available and I thought I would be screwed, but they are available. Um, and so that's been, that's been nice. Um, yeah, it's been good. I have no complaints. I'm fine. That's good. That's good. Well, you know, like it, the pod sounds like you never took a break. <laughs> I always like the, I, I, I've always told people this and, and it's true. Like I'm, way better and way more comfortable talking than writing mm. um yeah well I, I i was not not good at either of them so <laughs> i'm glad that you're one for two <laughs> um we have a lot of stuff to talk about we actually don't have that much stuff to talk about. we have one fucking thing to talk about um and we're gonna talk about <laughs> gee what is that and we're gonna talk about that but i think i'd also want to talk to you um about how we're talking about it uh our special guest will be former major league pitcher jerry blevins i want to talk to him about the same fucking thing um <laughs> and then we'll have our musical guests we'll get into some of your emails have a moment of culture and all that kind of stuff so i let's let's get into it mark it, and okay i don't want to okay i don't want to talk about the meta of this topic yet i just want to talk about the topic for a second um you know and the topic obviously is the sticky stuff we saw everyone i'm sure saw the memo that that michael hill sent around it got out there um every night now is filled with clips from press conferences and people like garrett richards saying stuff and then this morning zach gallon kind of went off about it um at the same time you know there are you know i don't whatever 360 or so pitchers in the big leagues right now and not everyone's going off about it and, and jeff passed out a really good piece of espn today about you know the rifts this is causing and people on various sides and no one's really right or wrong um you know i talked to a, an official with a big league team this week and and he explained to me that it's not really a big de- deal for his team and, and admitted some of his players you know use the stuff and said you know they're understand they need to make adjustments but no one's going crazy or anything like that and and um it just feels the thing that bothers me the most is that I maybe mean, we'll get into the meta right away. It's just that like, this is what we're talking about. Like no one's talking about games. No one's talking about standings. No one's talking about players. All this is all anyone's talking about. And this always feels like, and, and you might know better. You follow other sports more than I do. It just always feels like major league baseball can't get out of their way and, and, and do things that help make this the, the, the prevalent predominant and at times singular story instead of the game itself why right to the matter baby yeah um yeah like baseball fans and baseball as an institution it can sometimes be a really abusive relationship <laughs> because you've got on one hand right a sport that has become so authoritarian like let's step back and look at this for a second mm-hmm. right Whatever your opinions are of Rob Manfred, 
I think what has already become indisputable is that this is one of the most consequential commissionerships we've ever seen. Because just within the last year, KG, the minor leagues used to stand on their own. You know, there were owners individually that were, you know, like it was sort of what it had always been, kind of a separate entity in which the major leagues were like some kind of partner. Right. Well, not anymore. Right. Hostile takeover. Hostile takeover. Okay. We, we had an announcement about the Negro League statistics being incorporated into baseball reference mm-hmm. this week, which I thought was really, really great. But in December, Major League Baseball is just like, yeah, that's our history now. Like they're, we're watching the warehousing of the sport before mm-hmm. our eyes. So, you know, Howard Bryant called, we we're talking about it one day, and he called it, it's like watching Amazon take mm-hmm. over shopping, right? Major League Baseball, you know, as an entity didn't even actually exist until 20 years ago, which right. is not that long ago. Right. Before that, this sport had been governed by two separate leagues. Which, you know, over time, that drift brought them a lot closer. But, dude, when I started watching the game, they were two separate leagues. They were, you know, we still have two separate sets of rules. They had two separate sets of umpires. And they had two separate presidents. Two separate presidents, two separate strike zones. One league had a, a, a rule about when you had to suspend the game. The other one didn't. Okay? The, the styles of play were different, right? And now look what we, what's happened in the generation. So now you've got a commission, you've got a, a central office that decides that this is a problem now. It's been going on for a while, but we're going to do it now based on whatever, okay? Like, I guess, public pressure or the debate or whatever. But here they are changing something pretty major midstream. 60 games into a season, yeah. Yeah, man. Like, that is really something to watch. So it, it, it's the thing itself, obviously, has kind of enveloped the game. And I think it is the latest example of what we're, what I think is just such a consequential period of time. And by the way, there's a CBA coming. And so we're seeing this like authoritarian. So back to this like abusive relationship, right? So you got that going on. And then, you know, baseball fans like to beat themselves up because boy, part of the conditions of being a fan of this freaking game is to shit on it, right? Like people... Yeah. It's like they just, it's part of, I don't know, like, I guess it's tied up with nostalgia where everything you saw as a kid's just better. But, like, I don't think there's any sport in which the people that love it beat up the sport more. There's not. It always, and I've, I've made this point, but it, it also amazes me, you know, and, and you see this far more in the national broadcast, especially when the playoffs start, is how many broadcasters basically spend three hours bitching about baseball. Yes. It's horrible. And it's, it's amazing just, to me. That they yeah. don't realize that this is bad. It, you know, it's it's crazy in that, like, the, the primary point of these broadcasts is to sell the game. Right. Like, could you imagine any other product, any other, you know, place operating that way? Right? Like, you walk into a store and you ask the person there, hey, what, what do you think of this uh, this jacket? Oh, yeah, that shit sucks. Yeah, 20 years ago, they made really good jackets, but not these jackets now. now. Yeah, right, right. It's like, what are we doing? They're designed by a bunch of dorks and number crunchers. (laughs) Yeah, what what do you think about this house? Oh, the fucking nerds ruined it. Look at all the shit (laughs) they put on the roof. That's terrible. Terrible. I wouldn't buy this shit. That's what it is every Sunday night, right? Right, right. It's like they're almost punishing you for, like, 
So if you do like some elements of this game, which I do, by the way, there's a lot of elements of this game that I love still, but like they make you feel bad for it. Like they make you feel bad for liking a ball going over a fence. Right, right. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Like what? <laughs> it really, it's always been annoying to me and it's even more grating now. And so to your point, KG, right? Like through all this bullshit, there's some interesting baseball going on. Like if you haven't noticed, Vlad Guerrero Jr., is fucking incredible. Yeah. Okay? But, like, what are we talking about? Shit that's been going on for a while, right? And that, you know... For a century! For, yes. It's been it's been quite a while, right? And, like, and, and typically because it's something to talk about that isn't just, like, June baseball, I guess, it's getting overblown. Like, when you're on the beat and a player gets hurt, there's this thing where it's like, you know, there's no such thing as overriding an injury. Okay? Because... It's something people are interested in. They're going to talk about it, whatever. So you overwrite it. Like it, it's just how it goes. And this is that same concept taken to the nth degree. So you know, as someone in the media, like when these things come up, when, when all of a sudden there is, um, I don't want to, there's got to be a better term. When there is a distraction from the action on the field, if you will, there's a, there's, mm-hmm. there's another issue, if you will. Um, it feels like at times the media relishes in it. Well, okay, let's think about that for a sec. And, like, you've got a 162-game season. Yeah. And it's already on June whatever, 17th, okay, this week. There are some teams that, like, are already not interesting. So if you're someone covering that that kind of team, dude, this is mana from heaven. Right. Okay? Like, because now all you got to do is go and ask somebody on a Zoom call right now or on the field. Hey, what do you think about this? And then, dude, you're covered for the day, maybe for two, maybe for three. Mm-hmm. And maybe you get that for the next couple of weeks or next month or whatever. So, you know, I don't I, I don't want that to sound cynical because it's not. Is I don't blame people for – that is the job. you you got to write yeah, stuff no, that people want to read. Yeah, I understand. They have a job to do, right. But, like, this is, again, I guess another one of those – Got to feed the beast every day. Yes, and this is just low-hanging fruit. So, yeah, you're going to go out and pick the low-hanging fruit. So, and, and again, that's not to say the coverage has been that. I don't think, I think the coverage of this has been really strong, frankly. Um, I think it's been nice to see a lot of different outlets throwing some, you know, contributions into it. Like there isn't one driver of this. Right. I think that like you're seeing the people that cover the sport, you know, dig into the story from different levels and I love it. Um, and that's great. But like, yeah, I think part of the reaction that we're seeing is also, frankly, the ca- the time of the year that we're in. Yeah, you know? and it's interesting. Like every night now, you just have every beat writer watching the game with a stat cast window telling you how many RPMs the guy's down. Right, right, right. Yeah, so this is and then another phenomenon, right? Like we've got um, this thing where no one thought about this stuff a year ago. And now everybody's an expert with their take. Right, right. You know, and it, and and so you know, what is that? There's that spectrum, that scale where the the more you know, the more or the less you know, the more confident you are, and then you start to round the corner where if you get to gain more knowledge, you begin to have zero confidence. You enter this so-called valley of despair, right? <laughs> and then like some people just like never get there, right? And that's what I'm seeing because like these are like overnight experts that have like really hot takes about this. And it's like, you know, amplified by social media. So you get the echo of it, too. And now it's taken on a life of its own. So, yeah, here we are talking about sticky stuff. 
and, and yesterday, um, Scott Boris logged on. Oh, baby. <laughs> Dude, Scott's got to get new writers. Jesus Christ. Like, fire the writers, get some new... Anyway, let, do not let me interrupt you. KG, set it no, up. No, it's fine. So Scott, uh, Scott got mad uh, about this whole situation, and, 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 and he got mad again today. Um, and he's been taking kind of some direct shots at MLB and some direct shots at Michael Hill. Um, you know, and, and basically saying this was exactly what everyone else saying, like you let this happen for decades and now you're completely cutting people off. And, um, you know, it's not a, it's not an issue until Scott chimes in. And, and, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just wish he had, a, I just wish we didn't have COVID. He could have a scrum somewhere um, yeah. as, as, as he does every, every year at the winter meetings. But, you know, I, I guess the question I have now is, you know, we've seen like we're currently in this one week ramp down period, if you will. Um, I know some pitchers like Tyler Glass now kind of went cold turkey um, and, and obviously Glass now got hurt. I don't necessarily buy his belief that that's why he got hurt. Um, it just feels like someone looking for causation. Um, but next week, it's it's going to start. We're going to start seeing the. Let's call them the, the it's 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 going to be like the 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 lane and Memorial Day where they make sure you're not drunk. Um, Ooh, yeah. Where, where every couple innings they're going to you know pull your hat or your glove or whatever mm. and take a look and. And I'm sure the umpires will not use that to get back at guys who talk a lot of shit from the mound about the strike zone. I'm sure that is not going to happen. Not at all. At all. Zero. Not at all. Nope. Um, but you know. I, for for a, a we go against now because we now have a sport that has spent the last I don't know five to eight years obsessed with game length now creating this sort of legislative act that's going to add to the game length. <laughs> oh man, that's great! What a sport this is, huh? <laughs> Jesus, what a sport! Like, can I read something that Scott sent out in a statement to Ken Rosenthal of the Athletic? Only if you read it in your Scott Boris voice. I can't do that. I can't. Do, I'm just gonna. I can't. I can't even try. Here we go. Mark, Certainly. this is a historical situation. <laughs> Transcend, transcendent franchise player. <laughs> Certainly, the latest iterations of gripping substances and advances in performance measuring technology illustrate we have gone from the grip quote freeway to the performance enhancing quote autobahn. Uncle. <laughs> Uncle, performance enhancing autobahns, my favorite craft work song. Uncle, um, Scott's oh, yeah, Scott's Scott. something else. Did you see the Zach Gallon thing today? I, you know, I I saw it late last night, right before I went yeah. to bed. And like, and you know what? Here's the thing: it's so funny what our standard is for guys going off. That was like <laughs> fucking passive aggressive. That's not going off. That's not going off. That's talking shit. Like, kind of read between the lines. Like, shut up. Like, yeah, if you're gonna go, go. Right, right. Zach, Zach Gallon basically. Zach Gallon basically said when he was with the Marlins that Michael Hill encouraged the sticky stuff, and now Michael Hill's working for MLB and creating the policy to get rid of the sticky stuff, and now that's uh, a bit of a dichotomy, if you will. Um, and then uh, Scott Boris chimed in again today and compared uh, Michael Hill's response to Zach Gallon to that of Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. Oh, no, I didn't even see that. As in, oh, I know nothing, no. I see oh. nothing. 
Um, did, did Scott just hire Johnny Carson's writers back in the day and stick with him? <laughs> so actually, because his I, shit would be funny in 1987. Quick side, let's talk. Quick side note: You have been to plenty of winter meetings, as have I. You've all you've been in the Scott Boris scrub. You've dealt with Scott away from the winter meetings. Um, you've seen Scott's statements more than just this one. Um, I've had this conversation. Do you think Scott Boris has a writer? Yes, I do. No, I mean, in fairness, though, I think also this is like maybe there's someone helping him with the crafting, but I think this is also still Scott. Like, I, okay. I would give him credit. Like, this is He's, yeah. this is shit he says. So, you know, like, it's, I mean, he comes into, like, these sessions loaded with powder. The gunpowder's there, right? Like, right, he's right. ready to go, but... I think like they're generally his stuff. What do you call like, what do you, what do you call those uh, the the comedians who fix scripts? He does someone does punch up work. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> that's, right. that's exactly it. I think yeah. that's exactly what happens, man. Like it's anyway, like I it's you know what? I I think Scott is really good at his job. Right? And he's doing it again here. Oh, absolutely. I always he's uh, awesome first of all first of all, I like Scott. Um and the second thing, I always tell people, like, if you, you know, the, the, I don't know, I think the hates, you know, people who hate Scott Boris kind of are the weird people who hate player salaries. And I, I'm just like, make your money, baby. Um, but I always just say, like, if you they didn't, didn't beat that out of you, that, yeah, no, they did not. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, yeah, believe me, I had plenty of times I was in the room, I would, I, I can't tell you how many times I went, I don't care. It's not my money. Oh, um, man. Holy yeah, shit. God. Good for you, man. Yeah, no, that was great. You didn't go full heel, dude. That's no, beautiful. Yeah. He wants $9 million. We offered eight. Give him nine. Not my money. <laughs> I'm unsure that was the majority yeah. opinion in the room. Oh, at times I would get, you know, I'd, I'd understand the budget the times you want to spend oh, your money shit. elsewhere, but like, yeah, just get the, get the player. Um, so anyway, so like, yeah, my, my point has always been like, if you had an 18 year old kid throwing a hundred going into the draft, you'd certainly consider having Scott Boris as your agent. And if you say you oh, wouldn't, you're a liar. Yeah. You're stupid. If you're not, you're, oh, is it a good idea to have the best guy in the business? You know, of course. Come you know, I, Scott Boris is fine. Um, So I, so here's my question to you. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit about this. You talked about how, you know, people need stories and, and it's Christopher the Mill and all that kind of stuff. Um getting away from like how this is just not good for the game but like are we talking about this too much not enough um to finish the goldilocks thing just right like like is this is the focus on this just way out of hand or does it deserve this level of focus well look i would say yes except the players are the ones pouring the gasoline on this Mm -hmm. like tyler glass now Right. Like what he said the other day, you referenced it earlier. He's essentially saying because he quit cold turkey, forced him to do something different. Ergo, he's hurt. Okay. That's a little hard. Like I, when he says that, I, I, I think he believes it. Okay. Oh, like, no, I think he that. believes I think it. Really I don't think he's that. right. Yeah. But yes, I'm with you. That's because that's like, what is he? Six foot, whatever. He's this enormous dude who throws a hundred miles an hour with his right arm. And now he's got an achy elbow. Right. Which is, what is that? Like, that's a walking risk factor. That's like smoking two packs a day. And it's like, yeah, you're going to get lung cancer. Like, right. that's, you are literally the poster boy for that. And Oh, and by the way, we're coming off a screwed up season in which everybody's routines were messed up, where the game was already bracing for injuries, a, a rash of injuries, which, by the way, came to pass. Yes, for so sure. How, how do you differentiate one from the other? So I think that's part of... of 
you know, this too, right? It's like, and then there's this assumption that the only way to increase your spin is to cheat. Well, is that true? No, it's not true at all. It's not true um, at all. I mean, so, I mean there, there are a lot of guys are increasing their spin at a level you can't do through just coaching and practice. Hmm. But you can, I mean, absolutely, you can increase someone's spin rate through coaching and practice. Um, sure. But not not at some of the levels we're seeing. Like, you can't spike at 500 RPM right, or anything right. like that. Um, right. But, I mean, back to the glass now thing. I mean, that's the other thing. And it's, and it's you know, I used to joke about it at times. Like, you know, we'd be looking at some guy in the draft and go, oh, he had a TJ two years ago. And I'd say, great. It means we're not going to deal with it ourselves. You know, because mm-hmm. it, it's going to happen. These guys all are going to have some sort of arm problem. And to act like this suddenly is developing this, especially in this year where everyone's getting hurt for a right. lot of reasons. Like, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't feel right that like him suddenly having to choke a baseball created his, made his elbow go, no, go bluey. No. And, and although, and I want to emphasize, I, I think he actually believes that and that's fine. It's just, yeah, for just sure. Wear it, you know, and, and, you know, when what you're doing is inherently, uh, you know, taxing on your arm. These things are just going to happen. So, um, but yeah, to, you know, that, the context of your question, right? You're talking about, are we talking about this enough, not enough? Um, just right, uh, I would have said, <laughs> yeah, we're overblowing this, except, man, the, the players are the ones driving the bus now. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, when, when you're hearing glass now, say they're not helping. Like no one's helping it go away. Right. No, they don't want it to go away. Like, they're legitimately pissed. They're legitimately confused. And, and you know what? I don't blame them. Um, you know, I, I think they should have done something about this. Okay. Like, I think. Like a lot of things that happen in baseball, I, I think the concept itself is fine to like actually, you know, use like you know, legislate, like actually, you know, enforce the rule. It's funny when the, when the MLB sent out the memo, they're like, we're going to enhance enforcement. You could have just deleted enhanced. Right. Like, we're going to enforce it. Like, stop right. it. Stop like pretending you even tried before. Enough. That's bullshit. Okay. But like to do it at this time of year. To do it where, I mean, I know that like there had been talk about this in efforts. Right. Um, so it's not like a complete surprise. It, it wasn't like yesterday they decided this and then now it's, you know, we're doing it. No. But like it, it's still in the middle of the year where you already have these other issues, the tale of kind of a, the pandemic season, playing 60 games, uh, the impact that has on buildup when your pitchers and, 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 you know, workload concerns and, and whatever, like the increased risk of injury to throw another variable like that um, in the middle of the year, it, it's given this context, that, that's a tough one. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I get, I guess I get why they'd want to do it, but it's just, you know, it just adds another complication. And so when Tyler Glasnow says that, like, yeah, I don't, I can't square that, but does he actually believe it? He absolutely does. And, I, and I'll bet you he won't be the last. No, he won't be. And, and do you, like, where do you think this goes? Like, do you think we are going? I don't. I, it, you almost get the sense from that memo in a way that Major League Baseball doesn't want to enforce it that much. They kind of want to make. They kind of the, the 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 whole tone of the memo in my mind was I'm saying, please take care of this so we don't have to. Yeah. You know well, what I mean? Yeah. Well, how much are they putting? Like, I'm going to defend the umpires here. They're putting a lot on those guys. Yeah, this is a lot. Absolutely, but I think part of that is why they're cutting. They're saying no, no stuff at all because, like, a lot of people think, just let them use the rosin sunscreen. But then you're asking the umpires to be chemists and analyze whatever they're looking at. Right. Um, Right. It's like you either have something you don't is a is a more binary and faster decision, frankly, for the umpire. Um, 
And so, like, that's, I think that's part of the reasoning for that. But, I mean, do you think we're going to see, you know, if, if I set the over-under on suspensions for this stuff at 0. 0.5, <laughs> like, wh- how would you play it? No, I, I'm taking the over if it's 0. 0.5, because what they're going to do is find somebody that you've never heard of, or, you know, somebody who's kind of on the fringes or just trying to hang around. Right. They're, they're going to they gotta, they gotta make some examples. They're going to suspend the 28th pitcher of the Arizona Diamondbacks. That's what, right, shoes. exactly. They're going right. to go, they're going to do that. They're going to make examples of a couple of guys that like, you know, there's, unfortunately, they're going to pay the price for this so that, you know, Garrett Cole and Trevor Bauer and, and guys at the top end of the scale that they really want to target are getting the message or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, I mean, those names stick out to me just because they've been in the, the discourse. So I'm not like, let me be clear, right? No, I understand. <laughs> but, no, absolutely. Like, you know, it, it's, yeah, that's what's going to I mean, that to me is what feels like is going to happen. There's going to be some folks that become examples in hopes that it's like, okay, we're not fitting. Th- do you, you know? think someone's going to get suspended? Like, I mean, are you taking the over on the 0.5? Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take the over. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do feel like we're in for... I don't know. We're in for at least two months of oh, his spin rate is down. Oh, more than that's gonna be more. It's and it's gonna be so annoying. God, it's gonna be so annoying. Because it's yeah. every and I mean it's already every night. Like if every pitcher now, Garrett Richards gets the questions. Yeah, um, yeah. Know, anybody night. that you know, anybody that's like got good right in right. the last year or or went from like really good to elite in the last two years, right? Like so, Bauer obviously. My goodness, you know, and it's gonna <laughs> like it's just. It's going to be so absurd, right? Yeah. Like, the, the live tweets during games. Oh my God, it spins down by the, you know, like, but it's down 50 RPM. Uh, like, <laughs> it's just, it's like, I mean, I team, teams are looking at this. I mean, I did, I, I talked to someone who said, like, they're, you know, they've lined up, like, every competing team in baseball, they've lined up some bullpen targets. Um, and, he saw, and he said, hey, yeah, we're going to, we're going to wait a couple of weeks and see how these guys look. <laughs> Like, yeah. we, like we need to need to kind of know how real this is. Yeah, dude, man, my fantasy baseball league. I got offered a trade for Trevor Bauer. I was like, mm, let me get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> give me some time. <laughs> let's see how this plays out. You know, like let's let's give it let's give it a couple weeks. But yeah, it's just be so insufferable. You know, and I get it. Like you have to do it, but jeez Louise, you know, like it's just like I, I'm already one of these people where you know, look, I. Numbers are great. Obviously, like I, 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 you know, teams value them. It is how decisions get made and whatever. But I also think that, you know, when you're, when you're storytelling about the sport, it can be a hindrance mm-hmm. because sometimes like, you, you know, it, it's hard to know, okay, well, what's a, for instance, what, what is a significant amount of RPM? Well, that's going to change a little bit based on the pitch, what you're trying to do with it, right? Like where you started from, what your base, like all this crap. That's a lot of context you should be keeping in mind. But when you get into like full blown, you know, full lather controversy mode like that, all that context goes out the window. Right. Right. So like now you're, you're making the, it's just so easy to kind of get lost and make maybe too much out of like, you know, numbers because you're not getting the full context of it because of the environment that we're in right now where everybody's just mad and want to be mad because it's baseball. You know, it's like baseball people like to wallow in their anger. Right. Like they do. It's so, a mis- it's a miserable group, yeah. Well, kind of like I mean, I say that lovingly, okay, I do. Like, but it it you know, like it's it's just part of what it is, man. So and then fans too, fans do it too. It, it's again, it's like an odd you, kind of do, quirk of fandom of baseball. I think. Do you think it's because you lose so much? Like, even if you're you know, like even if you're a really 
if you're a fan of a great team, they're going to lose 50 something times and they're going to have, you know, they're going to have some sort of two and eight, 10 dude, game that's run. That's a great question, dude. Like, because if you love like the best football team, those, right. they, they go like 14 and two, 15 and one. If you love like a great basketball team, they're going to win three fourths or 80% of their games. Mm-hmm. If you love a really great baseball team, they're still losing. And, and uh, combined with the, the lower range of, of, of winning and losing percentages as well as all the games like they like 50 something times if you're the, the best team 50 something times you're going to bed saying they lost I, you know what dude what a great question like the root of this like undercurrent the root constant. of misery that it's a yeah. misery it's a misery sport yes it's like a self-flagellation sport yeah right so like i, I you know here's what i think it's kind of off the top of my head quality is harder to spot in this game because it's a what do you mean so like okay we all we can all look at like mike trout and be like damn he's great everyone can see that mm-hmm. right but and you know this being on the team side there's those guys that like you don't really appreciate until you watch them every day right right but and you know damn well though that if that guy goes down you're fucked all right like if you have enough of those types of guys go down your team's in trouble yeah. But you don't really appreciate it until you see that shit every day. And like and frankly guys people like what you were at with the uh, in Houston, right? On the inside of this thing see it even more because you have the full context of what's going on with the other guys. Yeah. Right? So like if if you know somebody's going through some shit off the field and it's impacting their performance and you've got one of these dudes that say like a, just a good mid-rotation starter, let's say who is never going to give you like the, the 11 strikeout game and like right. have he's a gonna, two ERA. He's going to give you six and keep you Correct. in the offense. He's going to oh, Worth, it, worth its weight worth its weight in gold. Right. In a sport where it's all chaos, any sort of reliability, you're running toward it. Well, that's not an easy thing to see every day. Right. right? And I think there's a lot of examples in baseball like that. Right. Like it's hard to like we hear about quality at bats. Right or guys who don't give an at bat away, and that kind of, like it's, sometimes it's hard to see that stuff. So I think maybe part of the the root of misery, right, the self flagellation, just like always being mad, is that it can be really easy to lose sight of like yeah. okay, what's good. That's, because, it's, you know? it's, it's funny you bring it up because like one of my favorite players, and I, he was always on like my players I wanted to acquire list was Yusmerio Petit. Mm-hmm. And it's just like like you smear he doesn't boy. That's he doesn't right. right he doesn't throw hundred miles an hour he doesn't come in and 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 blow everyone away but he's always good and he's yep. always available yep he's and oh my god is that worth a ton yep. like he he can throw eighty games and he's always solid or better yep yep he's I'm all in do his job and you right. can bank on it to a certain extent which again in a sport where it's all chaos and unpredictability to to be able to bank on anything. Yeah, it's huge. So like, right? That's uh, Petit's a great example of what I'm talking about. But like, so who's get, how, how do you notice that unless you're yeah. watching it every single day? And you're consumed by it, and even then, because the season is so damned long, right? Like, you look at anything long enough, you start to you, you start to miss the nuances of it, right? right. You stare at it long enough, you're going to miss it. So, and, that, and I don't think you really appreciate what a good team even means. Like, if a, you know, team, yeah, every standings page now has like the last ten column. Mm-hmm. Um, if team six and four, like, man, they're playing all right. If you go, if you win six out of ten games all year, you're gonna win ninety eight games. Yeah, right. That's it. That's know? what I mean. Exactly. So, of course, this sport's messed up in that way, right? Like, it, it, of course, you're gonna be probably, you know, 
trend towards miserable all the time when, like I said, success is kind of hard to see after a while. Right. And I guess, they, and yeah, it's it, just to stick with this, like, it's just also that, that there's no such thing as a single game upset. No. Which is what I, which is actually what I love about baseball. Like in, in football, I don't know who a good football team is, but if the really good Super Bowl team plays the team that's 0 and 12 and loses, that's a shocking upset. Right. 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 The Arizona Diamondbacks are 5 and 36, first of all, in their last mm-hmm. 41 games. If the Arizona Diamondbacks played, the Chicago White Sox tomorrow and one six to three, you go, Oh, they won. You wouldn't be go, Oh my God, this is crazy. Right. You right, know, right. That that's actually, it's funny. You, you say that like about baseball, the, the more different it is from modern life, the more I love it, <laughs> to be honest. Like I really do. Like it's, it's so, it, it does. Like when you really think about the sport, how it's constructed its roots, right? Like the things that make it appealing to the folks that love it. I think one of it, at least for me, is the fact that it is just so damn different. Now, look, I love the NBA. That's why I love, I love yeah, the absolutely. NBA. Okay, like, let me just be like, I love the NBA. I think the NBA is better than it's ever been. It is a fucking wonderful sport and it is great. Um, I love baseball just as much because it is just so different, right? Like, the marathon aspect of it, the fact you, you stick over the long term, you gotta watch it unfold. Mm-hmm. The teams change. Like a single team changes so many times during a year, you know, a, a surprise. You never get over that, right? Watching what the San Francisco Giants are doing, like when everyone they are saying well, this is what they're going to be. And then you watch them and it's like, man, this is fun. This is fun. Yeah. So I, and, and it has to go over a long period. So anyway, I just the more things change with everything else, the more, you know, mo- the more modern everything else is like, man, I, I appreciate the game even more baseball. I, I, I want to get back to what you said way earlier about how we're watching like the warehousing of Major League Baseball, I think was what you said. Um, I, I know this is hard to predict, but like, you know, what is, where are we in 10 years because of what's going on? Uh, here's one that worries me, right? And it, it, I guess it's kind of germane to what we're talking about regarding sticky stuff. We've seen almost like a mass production of ball players, mm-hmm. right? Like, because I, I like golf. Okay, I, I like to play golf. I watch it. I remember when I first started watching it. You'd watch guys swing, and they were so funky and different, right? Like, because you still had guys on the professional tour that were totally self-taught, right? Like someone like Lee Trevino, let's say, didn't grow up in like a, a, a to start golfing was good at it and was good enough to go pro and that's how well, he well yeah he he was a poor kid that got a, a a one club as a gift and then became a hustler at country clubs essentially okay but he learned how he learned the game of caddying he worked at it kind of taught himself there wasn't some pro teaching him right right and you know do you remember when baseball was like that we you still had guys that like just learned on their own <clears throat> we don't see that anymore. No. And I think part of why we've seen, you know, the lack of action in the game is because, you know, teaching guys how to hit the way they hit now is probably easier. You go, you, you have more people that are able to do it. The technology makes it so that you can pass these concepts along to a wider, you know, group of people. You don't have to be as, quali- I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if these are qualified, but, but like, let's put it this way. You don't need a lifetime's worth of experience to go coach hitters now. Right. And like, and we see that even in the major league coaching ranks, right? 
Like it used to be the coaches were guys that had like all this lived experience, learned experience. Well, that ain't the case anymore. Mm-mm. And okay? even less so with the pitching coaches. Like you right. need someone who can understand the data and communicate it well. Correct. The technology has, has made it different. And I'm not saying that's wrong or whatever. But the thing that does scare me is that, you know, all of those like just like kind of, kind of the monoculture of the game. Yes, in a way. yes. Like every works, like every pitcher now is like yeah, I mean not every pitcher obviously and and you know but 80, 90% of guys are just like it's like four seam ride power breaker. Yep. Yep. Cuz we know that's what works. Yep. That's right. And and you can repeat it. It's you know, you built the sport is built a machine to just mass produce these types of players. And mm. I think that's what scares me. Is that if we and the warehousing of the sport fits in that okay like it's just you, you have a smaller group of people essentially determining what it is that this looks like mm-hmm. and whenever that happens i think that's terrifying because if they screw it up right like and you know if it's not the right people making those calls and it's a small group boy the, the consequences are massive and it, it might end up being unrecognizable so that that's like the doomsday i hope that doesn't happen <laughs> i don't think it'll happen but like is that on the table because of the trends that we're seeing? It absolutely is, right? Like, I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's what the technology is kind of like. That's been one of the side effects of it. And like, I hate to even say that out loud because I sound like one of these cranky old people that hates the sport. I, I don't. It's not me. Okay. But like, the reality is there is a sameness that we've seen. Okay. And part of that's because it works. Yep. Okay. You can replicate it. And that's important when you're trying to look for and we're going to invest your money, your, your limited resources. Well, you're going to go to the things that have a track record of working. If right. that means it's... elevating, right, hit a ball in the air, get stronger, then that's what you're going to do. You're going to mass produce those guys. Do you think you'll still love baseball in 10 years? Good Lord, I hope so. I think I will. <laughs> I think I will. You know what? I'll tell I you think what. I will. I think I will too. Because, see, I was watching a game two weeks ago. <clears throat> right like all this debate about it. guys don't put the ball and play enough but you know what when it fucking happens it's still amazing right and, and the play was like your classic your guy's gonna try to score from first on a ball in the gap and they pull up a perfect route and nail his ass at the plate and just like jesus that's beautiful yeah that is so cool right like it was the right decision right the runner has a good he's a, he got some speed i mean he's gonna challenge him. he's gonna make them make a play and then you watch him do it, and you're just like, you're blown away by how fucking good these guys are. Right? Yeah, and it was, yeah, I mean, last night it was, uh, the ninth inning of the the Yankees-Jays game was riveting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a one-run game. Chapman comes in. Um, Vladimir Guerrero kind of mishits and, and slices one to right. Teoscar does the same a little harder, and second and third, no outs. And Chapman got out of it. And it was and it was riveting. Yep. You know, and there was, and, and Vlad made a, a bit of a, ah, I, it wasn't his fault. Um, he ran on contact and got kind of screwed on something, but um, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also, I don't know, I'm, I, it's not, I don't, it's not fun, but I am still kind of fascinated by the Diamondbacks. They're, they're totally screwed. Like every, at one point, their entire rotation was on the DL. Mm-hmm. Everybody. They, they, they have used 27 pitchers this year. I counted. Um, and they've used 12 starters this year. Um, Man, it's just a nightmare. But I'll watch. I'll watch the train wreck too. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like that's. You ask in ten years if I'll still. I, I think I'll still be a fan of it because there's always going to be a way to enjoy it. There's just so yeah. many elements of it, man. Like there's so many pieces of this that are worth your time and attention. 
Okay, and like, and, and so long as there's talented players doing a very difficult thing, yeah, I'm gonna like watching it. So uh, we'll take a break on that. We'll come back. We'll talk to Jerry Blevins about the sticky stuff and his history with it. And we'll come back. Talk about our musical guest, Drunken Logic. Read your emails. Talk about some other things. Stick around. What happens when the four of us are in the same room and we haven't seen each other since leaving the womb? But the hiss of the static means no one has a damn thing to say. We just stare at our phones. They're glued to our hands. We're searching for friends, making overdue plans. Cause wherever we are, it's the greener grass is fading to gray. There must have been a point where we could have said no. What if I don't grow up, I just grow colder, orbiting away And the sun keeps shrinking with every passing day So nobody's happy, the photos are shot Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. Our special guest was a 17th round pick in 2004 out of the University of Dayton by the Chicago Cubs. He went on to a 
13-year big league career that included 609 appearances. And joining us from his um, palatial estate, it's Jerry (laughs) Blevins. Jerry, how are you, man? I'm good, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. You know, obviously, this the story of the day is the sticky stuff. And, and, and I just kind of wanted to talk to a, a pitcher who, uh, you know, recently pitched. You know, your last big league game was 2019. You did spend some 2020 time at alt at, at sites. Um, and just I, I just kind of want to talk about the very beginning. Like, I assume your first uh, experience with just using just a rosin bag happened, I would guess, at Arcadia High School in lovely Northwest Ohio. Uh, that would be a, uh, a bad guess to be honest, Kevin. Okay. Like, uh, we didn't have rosin bags, uh, at my level. I went to a really small high school. Um, I graduated with 39 people. Um, so we didn't really have access to anything like that. I never really thought about it. That that's kind of the biggest thing for me is I, I never really had an issue with the ball. I never thought about the grip of the baseball from little league all the way through the minor leagues. It was never a a thought that entered my mind um, until I got to the big leagues. And and that that's where the problem starts. The, the baseball itself is the issue. Right. And and so um, you have to figure it out because it, 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 the baseball at the big league level is unlike anything you'll ever experience in life. Uh, I choke the baseball. If you know what that term means, I'm, I'm sure um Craig understands it's I put the baseball so deep into my hand and I squeeze it so hard that like I've never had an issue gripping um most pitching coaches don't teach that most guys don't feel comfortable doing that you you put the ball out in your fingers a lot of a lot of pitching coaches like to teach you you treat the ball like an egg you have it you secure it but you don't squeeze it and break it because if you choke it too much like I do it actually slows the rotation of the ball down it, it it takes some velo off because you're adding you know extra points and 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 whatnot so I never had an issue with the ball and then I got to the big leagues in 2007 in Oakland and it was dusty man it, it felt dusty I'm like man what is this I couldn't rub it off with my hands it just felt weird um and so I asked the guys, like, hey, what's going on with this baseball? I've never had an issue before. And they all kind of laughed and scoffed. They're like, yeah, man, the big league baseball is a mess. So um, they're like, look, take sunscreen that you apply anyway um, and then tap the rosin bag on your forearm. And that's it. That's the whole thing. And then when you get a new baseball and you can't, it doesn't feel right, you just literally touch your hand to your forearm and then you rub that layer of dust off and then the ball feels like every other baseball. So that's, that's where it started. That's the origins. And, uh, you know, obviously, like I said, I mean, you were pitching as a professional last year. Uh, I assume you, you saw other people using the, the, the real, the, the, the real stuff, the spider tack and the, the much heavier stuff like that. Have you ever, did you ever try it? Um, I did experiment with it, experiment with it mostly um, in like um, at the alternate site, you know, this first month. I never, it felt like cheating to me. It was... Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't something that you use because the Major League Baseball is trash and you need it to feel like every other baseball you've ever held in your life. Uh, what you're doing is you're you're taking, um, you're using MLB's lack of enforcement of a rule and you're exploiting it and you're gaining an advantage. So I, I, I experimented with it just to see if it would do it, you know, with the instant feedback of, 
you know, today's high-speed cameras and programs and TrackMan and Rapsodo, right. you can literally see it in real time if it's making an effect. And so I've, I experimented with it just to see if it would do something, and it definitely does. I never took it into a game, um, never pitched it with it in the big leagues. And so I, I, it's, it is cheating. I view it as such, and, and that's, you know, that's the nature of the game. And you were never like a huge spin guy as it was. You were a very weird pitcher. Don't take that wrong. Like you were very strange. Like it was as someone who used to analyze players for a team and press like you were a you were a, a weird outlier. Um, yeah, I, I was nothing. I do is exceptional on paper. No, I'm like if just on like pure track man data, which you know when I was with the Astros, we spent a ton of time doing. You had the track man of a guy at Double A with an ERA north of six. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But, you know, the the difference between somebody that evaluates, you know, what you look like on paper and, you know, and your data and then somebody that can just get people out. Those are those yep. are different things. My my curveball has been my bread and butter my whole life. Um, nobody, you know, the data points can't tell me why exactly my curveball gets swings and misses and a lot of it is because I know when to throw it, how to throw it, where to put it. I can read a hitter swings and you can't, you can't put those in data points that you, you can't evaluate. You can't tabulate those into data points yet though. They're, they're trying, but uh, that's still a, you know, there's intangibles out there. Yeah. You were a mystery. You were just one of those guys who was putting like saying, wait, whatever, something's going on beyond the data and, and we don't know what it is, but he, he gets <laughs> dudes out. Um, <laughs> You talked about, I mean, you used, let's you used, let's call it the basic package, sunscreen with the rosin. Um, by 2020, like, do you have an, what would your personal estimate be um, of how many people were using anything, something, something more than just the, the, the basic package, if you will? Yeah, I would say the basic package uh, and then all everything else. I'd say 95% of guys are using some form of, grip enhancer and and what percentage are using something beyond the basic package Nah, so i don't know at the big league level um i would say less than 50 percent um but in the minor leagues and especially the upper minor leagues i'd say it's at 99 percent because yeah that's that's the see that's the biggest issue to me so the 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 main thing is yes guys are cheating and that is terrible i'm excited for it to get out of the game it's been kind of uh you know a black eye on the game for a while the problem isn't with just stopping guys from using foreign stump substances the problem is that mlb knew that the big league baseball is terrible and every other league in in baseball has a ball that comes right out of the packaging ready to use yeah the minor league baseball is fine like you use it then you get to the big leagues and all of a sudden the main piece of equipment is almost unusable and especially at a night game in Oakland when it's 50 degrees and you got that marine layer you can't grip the ball and it becomes dangerous and and you have to change how you've done something your whole life just because they can't make a proper baseball so it went from that and they decided they didn't want to fix the baseball, and it kept that gray area open for guys to exploit, and that's where we are. And they failed to address it for years. And baseball players are human beings, and organizations are run by human beings. And they said, well, they don't care about this, so let's figure out the best way to exploit it. And that's where we are in the game. 
<laughs> Jerry, go back to 20, uh, 2007, right? You're, you're talking about breaking in. How shocking was it that this, you know, the, the essential piece of equipment for this sport was trash, right? Like, what, what was that like? Like, you get it's, to the show, everything's supposed to be better, and the baseball sucks. It's, <laughs> it's so strange. It's 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 almost it's almost like you get like you think if you're if you're an NFL player or uh, an NBA player and you've played with this basketball in the development leagues and in college and the size is pretty much the same um that you know it feels a little bit different you get used to it but the ball bounces right mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you get to the NBA and the ball just refuses to bounce it has no grip <laughs> it slides everywhere wow. the only, you have to you know use two hands to dribble it doesn't make sense it was completely it, it threw me off. My first September in 07, I struggled because I I was like, man, this is my fault. I don't know how to pitch in the big leagues. You know, I struggled with control. I struggled with my confidence because it felt so foreign to me being on the mound. I'm facing the big league hitters. I'm living out my dream. And the baseball is betraying me. And I think it's my fault. And so I struggled in 07 in that September. Mm-hmm. A couple of spring training at- trainings ago i know major league baseball did kind of experiment with a pre-tacked ball that they let some teams mess around with did you see that ball at all uh, i never i never got to to, to <laughs> see that baseball and and you know npb currently uses a pre-tacked ball uh do you feel like what major league baseball is doing now um ignoring all of their kind of faults of the past of you know banning everything so like now you can't even do the sunscreen rosin thing um is this going too far well i think it's just it's again it's or should they just fix the damn ball they just they just need to fix the damn ball they've had years to do it and they have it and now guys are are having to make an adjustment on the fly this is this is the main issue or a highlight of the main issue between the commissioner's office and the players association is we're not the players aren't involved in any of the decisions and they make these decisions based off a reactionary thing instead of being proactive and fixing the baseball if they fix the baseball there is no excuse for anyone to ever put any foreign substance on their hand or on the ball that's all you had to do and then now you leave that gray area open because you have a bad product and then you slam the door shut because all of a sudden people are starting to get a peek behind the curtain you allowed it to happen players exploited it every everybody sucks here but the bottom line is the ball is still slippery and the ball still feels, you know, like a, uh, the, it's like so dusty that it's like you're, you're at your uncle's house and the ceiling fan in his spare bedroom that never gets used turns on and all that <laughs> stuff kicks off. That's, it's, it's atrocious. It makes me, I get angry thinking about the baseball at the big league level. So if you fix the baseball, you fix every problem. You can hammer down. Nobody will complain because they know that if anybody is doing anything, it's cheating. Do you did you feel like the balls beyond the the dustiness and just the pure surface and the grip issue? Did you feel like the ball change year to year? I, I know people have talked about the seams being higher in, in recent balls and things like that. Did you feel any other? physical changes to the ball there was physical changes when you when you get to the big leagues the minor league baseball is a little bit more you know the seams are a little bit wider they're not as tight the ball doesn't fly as much and then you know they changed the baseball and and the flight of the ball um so they they saw a problem with the grip of the baseball and they decided to ignore that and they wanted the ball to go further and faster so they changed 
the core of the baseball. I remember being in spring training, I, whatever year that they changed it, and I, and I remember shagging fly balls, and all of a sudden I'm like standing in the outfield after you know a full off season, and I'm under a, a fly ball, and I'm like, oh man, I misjudged that. It landed like 12, 15 feet behind me. I'm like, whoa, that's been a while since I've been that far off, you know. And then it did happen again and again. I'm like, wait, this isn't just me. The baseball is doing something different. Mm-hmm. And so, huh. you know, they 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 changed it. And that's fine. I mean, it's it's silly to do that, but it is whatever. You can make an adjustment off of the baseball. Um, but the 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 grip is still terrible. They never address that and they they just make changes. If the seams are higher, you can figure that out. If if you know, the ball flies different, you can figure that out. But if you can't hold on to the ball, your delivery is going to be inconsistent and it's going to create unpredictable outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, Jerry, I, I've been curious about this. Whenever I see something like this happen in the game, like I'm always curious as to, you know, how professionals deal with it. So, uh, you know, this is going to feel like our conversations back in the day at City Field. Okay. I'm not asking for names or dates or anything like that. I, I'm really just going for understanding. But like, can you recall the first time you encountered a situation where someone was clearly breaking the rules. They were going over the line of the accepted norm. And, and how did that make you feel? This is a someone who's you know, presumably on your team. He's on your side. Uh, I mean, I doubt that you're going to go report that, right? But you also know, I would, you know, judging from what you've said, that there was something fundamentally wrong about it. So like, do you recall that instance? What was that like? What were you thinking and how did you react? Yeah, um, it was in, it was in, um, I mean, I'm sure I saw somebody put pine tar on their fingers in the minor leagues, but I remember being in the big leagues and there was guys that, that would put pine tar on and they didn't know that it was actually really helping their, they didn't have the technology to really know that it was enhancing their pitches. Mm -hmm. They just knew that it would be sharper. You know, right. guys have been doctoring the baseball, whether it's, you know, using a piece of sandpaper and scuffing it or using spit and using it to slip. Guys have been manipulating the baseball forever. It will still happen. People will still try to take an advantage because some people don't think it's cheating if you until you get caught. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I I have a problem with it. I have a problem with you you using something illegal to get an advantage over not just the hitters but to other pitchers that aren't doing that i think it's i think it's a moral problem and so i remember seeing it and it wasn't ever it wasn't so prevalent when i first came up to where i'm like yeah man i was just like that sucks you know you see somebody that you admire or somebody in in your class and in, in your on your level and you're just it's a little bit disappointing mhm uh, do you do you think okay? We talk about steroids in the game, so it's a kind of an apt comp, right? And that this is an enhancer of some kind, and you know we'll talk about Barry Bonds, right? Like I've always been of the opinion that yeah, like steroids obviously help keep people on the field, but the talent to like do what he did, to recognize pitches, to hit with that kind of power, right? Like the craft of hitting, like I don't think there's a pill you can take to learn that. I, I wonder with this stuff. Like, are there actually instances, Jerry, where somebody who was not good at all, all of a sudden becomes really, really good simply because of this stuff? Is that how powerful it is? Is the impact smaller? Is it all over the map? Like, what's your take on that? So that's a that's a good point because I've I've had a lot of discussions and a lot of time to reflect on on kind of the overall feel of it. 
the steroids, like Barry Bonds ha- has unbelievable ability to hit a baseball. Um, there's no doubt about it. He's one of the greatest players of all time, probably would have been one of the greatest players of all time without enhancing drugs. You know, it turned, it turned him from an elite player to arguably the greatest player of all time. But that being said, you still have to have a skill and the same goes for, for pitching, you know, the the extra sticky doesn't make you all of a sudden the best pitcher on the planet. But what it can do and what it's been proven to do with, with all the technology in, in the modern game today, it allows a major league average slider, which is still a really good slider and one of the best 1% of baseball players in the world throw at a, you know, a major league average pitch is still a really good pitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a major league average pitch, adds enough spin to where it is a major league elite pitch. So it becomes an average pitch to an almost wipeout pitch. And so, yes, it does enhance people's performance and it is cheating, but it doesn't make, you know, a pitcher that wasn't going to be in the big leagues already into an elite pitcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry, uh, like I said, you 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 were in a, at an alt site in 2020. You, you hung them up this April. Um, what have you been doing? <laughs> I've been just being a dad, being a being a husband. Um, I've got two young boys, three and one and a half, and I've just been enjoying being around them. I've got a whole family that I've neglected with my travels in baseball over the years, and and I'm just trying to be around for them. Uh, I do a little bit of everything. I, I still watch the game. I, I still work a little bit with SNY and I'm currently writing an article about the, you know, sticky stuff for a newspaper in New York. Like I still work and I'm still finding time, but most of the, most of it is now just me enjoying a slower pace. Um, my life has been singularly dedicated to pitching and now I have to find something else. And then right now it's just being a, a good person to the people that are the closest to me. Have you thought about like what's next once you start driving them insane? <laughs> I definitely have. Um, you know, I'll, I'll either do something in the media or I'll do something inside of an organization, whether mm-hmm. that's, you know, I'm not exactly sure where that is yet, but uh, I'm working on it. I, I love that you're going to have a higher byline count than I'm going to have, Jerry. Like, if we could have said that in 2015, that would be hilarious. <laughs> like, I, you know, we, we talk so much about what's wrong with baseball, right? And it's just sort of how it goes, right? Fans are that way. Even players can get that way. But, like, what do you love about it still? As a guy that made his living at it, is now done with that phase of it, but is still engaged in this sport, what, what, of this is, what, what do you like about it that has transcended all of that? Man, I, I love the battle. I love the grind of it. Baseball is a unique sport compared to the other ones. It's 162 games over a six-month period. There is so many factors that play into that. It's not just a, a finite skill that you have. There's durability. There's longevity. There's there's so many factors um, of what it takes to play in a long season of baseball and be successful. On top of that, as a pitcher, you get to you get to be a gladiator of sense you're standing in an arena and the the whole game is on the line with you and you have to get the guy in front of you out you know most of my career I spent or the the better part of my career especially towards the end I was a a, a lefty specialist I was a loogie I would come in 
with runners in scoring position, the game on the line, you know, and it's a pass or fail thing. And I loved it. That, that pressure, that, that emotion, all the, all the, the leverage in the game riding on that, that one outcome of me versus this one guy. And it's a battle of gladiators and, and, it's a it's a small piece in a huge team sport that takes so many different things and factors and and it's just a beautiful game at a beautiful pace with so many different small little happenings going on that create one beautiful sport and it's it, it's it's different if you like baseball you're probably um, a romantic at heart because it, it takes a little bit extra to 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 enjoy baseball mm. and I'm definitely a romantic at heart. Uh, before we let you go, Jerry, I have, I have one last question for you. Um, on August 16th, 2018, in a blowout over the Phillies, you had your only hit of your major league career. And it was a single off of a uh, dominating pitcher named Scott Kingery, <laughs> who's in as a position player. Um I, I mean, obviously, you were like you said, you were a loogie. Loogies don't hit a lot. Um, how important was getting that first hit, even if it was off of a position player? Um, maybe the single greatest moment in my career, honestly. It <laughs> might, your, it I might mean, be. you're a career 500 hitter. You're one for two. two I'm one for four. I'm okay, one for one four. For four. One yeah, for so I'm a 250 hitter, which is pretty darn good. Um, it's amazing. Like, get, hitting, getting a, a base hit in a big league game is is something I dreamed about forever. It's something that even as a pitcher, you know, I dreamed about. It's so hard to hit a baseball, which is why <laughs> I loved baseball and pitching because even if I messed up, you still have to hit this thing. So I always had confidence that as long as I'm, I know what I'm doing and I execute, the guy on the other end has to hit. Um, so when I got a, I got a big league hit, I got four at-bats in my 13-year career, like spread out. There's no time for me to like, you know, work on my craft of hitting and be prepared. It's just like, all right, here you are. Good luck. It's a random day on a random game and a random inning, and this is your chance. And I reveled in it, man. You know, whether or not it was a position player really doesn't matter to me. When I when I tell my grandkids about it, it'll be off of Clayton Kershaw. You can you can bet that. Um, but it's still a big big league hit, man. I, I smile about it right now. I actually have the the baseball in front of me. Oh, that's great. Um, it's 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 a it's a shining moment in a in a blessed career and and I appreciate it and thank you for bringing it up. I love talking about it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, Jerry, I want to thank you for coming on. I know you got uh, I think you got to get to. Uh, if you want to follow Jerry on Twitter, he is at Jerry Blevins. You have anything else we need to plug? No, that's great, man. You, you, my Twitter is kind of the center of my uh, social media universe, so you can find me there and, and, and spread out from there. Fantastic. Thanks again, Jerry. I right, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Jerry Blevins for joining us. Our first, uh, our first player as a as a co-host and/or guest. Uh, our musical guest this week is Drunken Logic. Uh, Drunken Logic got in touch and then sent us music, and that's what we're playing. This is uh, headed up by Jake Kassman. Uh He started Drunken Logic. They released. They have three full releases. Um, they recently, uh, in 2018, donated their song and video, What a Beautiful Morning, one of their more better-known things, to the 30 Days, 30 Songs Project for a Trump-Free America, along with Death Cab for Cutie, R.E.M., and more. Uh, in 2018, Jake, the founder, returned to his home state of California to release Drunken Logic's third record, The Loudness Wars, an unblinking reflection on the forces rolling our country and the people left in their wake. Uh, consistently funny, always honest, never boring. Drunken Logic is a powder keg of diverse rock music sparked by the American folk tradition. I love band bios. An inspiring and challenging sound defined by the times in which we live. If you want to learn more about Jake and Drunken Logic, uh, you can find them on all your favorite music streaming platforms and you can learn more about the band and, and get stuff at drunkenlogicmusic.com. Great stuff. And thanks to Jake for getting in touch uh, and, and being our musical guest this week. Are you ready for emails? Uh, as always, send us emails, uh, chinmusic at pangrass.com. We read them all. Uh, and and we did get a couple of good applications for Listener of the Week. Uh, if you think you should be, be the Listener of the Week, you live an interesting life or do something interesting, send me an email as well, chinmusic at fangrass.com. Our first email comes from Darren, and he says, Hello, Kevin, and distinguished guest. You ever been called distinguished before, Mark? Never once. Excellent. We Groundbreaking show this is. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy the show, and having your voice back in my podcast rotation has been a welcome addition to an otherwise forgettable year. It's happy. It's good to be back, Darren. In your mock draft you collaborated on with Eric Longenhagen, you mentioned there is some indication that Jack Leiter is trying to price himself down to Boston. I wonder if you could expand on how a player and his representatives might successfully manipulate which team they are selected by among those picking near the top of the draft. It's not that complicated, especially in the case of a guy like Jack Leiter. I, you, I, there's already been, they're already politicking here. It's already happening, and they're, they're already politicking kind of surprisingly in public at times. Um, obviously, Jack Leiter's father is Al Leiter. I don't have his base, Al's baseball reference page in front of me, but I'm sure he made tens and tens of millions of dollars playing professional baseball. And so there's a little difference here. You go, well, Jack doesn't need the money because Jack doesn't need the money. And so Al's saying, oh, he could go back to school. And then, you know, once teams above Boston at four, if they're interested in Jack, Jack might go, well, it's $10 million or I'm going back to school. And you can call his bluff. And at times teams do take guys and call his bluff, but teams don't want to lose that pick. I know they get a pick later, but teams, no matter what, they do not want to lose that pick. And so they'll, he'll, he'll, they'll move himself down. Um, and at times you can call, you know, for a player, not Jack Leiter, even, you know, if you're Picking in the in the thirties or, or if you're in the second round, you might call a player and say, Hey, you know, will you sign for one point five here? And the agent might say, Hey, I got one point seven five below me. You know, don't take my guy. I got a, I got an offer for one point seven five later. Um, and so that's how guys manipulate the draft. That's how guys end up kind of guiding themselves to certain teams um, by throwing out big numbers and sometimes it's a bluff and sometimes it's not. But Leiter kind of has that extra little oomph to what he's saying in the sense that he could go back to school if he wanted to. He doesn't need the money right now. Yeah, I'm curious, KG, like, you know, having delved into that world, how straightforward generally were people in that process, right? Did you, did you, could you take people at face value or was there always this like 
thought, well, okay, I better get some extra context here. I better fill out this picture and do some reporting and find out whether what they're saying is actually bullshit or if it's true. Um, How did you approach that? Yeah, I mean, in general, like you already had relationships with these with the agents, mm-hmm. um, and those relationships were usually built on trust, and 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 you would, you know, ninety percent of the time, I believed them. Okay. And ninety percent of the time, they were telling the truth. It was, I think, the percentages matched up pretty well. Um, there are always a few, you know, weird birds out there who would do weird stuff and throw out crazy numbers and and you could say he's he'll he'll sign for less than that you know mm-hmm. um and, and you and you know I, I i could you know maybe one or two picks a year you'd you'd make without having a, a real understanding before you said his name huh. but for the most part it's all it's all figured out before you make the pick you know what, what was that feeling that one or two times kg it's nervous it's nerve-wracking um like you don't know if it's going to work out or not um, but you take him going, yeah, look, he's not, he's not going to need that much. And, and you, you can, because of the way that the, the, the draft caps work, like if they keep waiting, you keep signing all these other players and you can actually go to them and go, this, here's the spreadsheet. I have $425,000 left in the cap. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't go over that. This is what I can offer you. Right. Um, uh, and you're not lying and you can they show, Hey, look, we signed this guy for this much, this guy for this much. This is how much money we have left to stay under the, 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 the pool cap. Um, and so like you can be straightforward with, you know, information backing up that you're not full of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that certainly helped, but yeah, it's, I mean, for the most part, I mean, you're, you're on the phone before every pick on, you know, Hey, and even like in the 35th round, like, you know, Hey, will this guy, you know, will you sign for $75,000, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's a done deal, um, before you even say the name, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's the busiest part of the draft or the phone calls before you make your pick. Huh. Um, Richard writes in and says a recent conversation with friends about the weirdness of privileged parents. And it got me thinking about the youth sport industry, travel ball and showcases. Does having entitled assholes for parents ever lurk in the background of how an amateur prospect is perceived or even just actual decent humans for parents? I'm thinking of, of it as a possible indicator of what a player might end up being like to deal with, especially in their first seasons in an organization. Is swatting away a couple helicopter parents a year just part of player development and low minors coaching life? <laughs> Bet your ass it is, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Oh. That's a great question. Yeah. So I go back to the draft, like the worst, the last thing you ever wanted to hear. Um, a big part of the, like the draft leading up to the draft, like the meeting, like the day before, right? You know, you're lining up all your magnets and you always go through, you know, just because this goes back to email number one. Like you got to call these agents and like, you know, will this guy sign for this? Because that's the last thing you ever want to see is like his father's representing him. Mm-hmm. His father's the agent, and they're just like, "Oh, this is going to be a nightmare," because they have no idea how the draft works, and you can even explain to them like the cap and the bonus and the slots and everything, but they don't pay attention to any of that. Um, they just care about their kid Johnny, um, and so the last thing, like the kid, the, the last thing you ever want to hear is they have a, their parents are representing them. The second thing you don't want to hear is that their parent is their pitching coach, their high school coach, or their hitting mm-hmm. coach, mm-hmm. because they come to pro ball. And then you have uh, really excellent professional instructors for them. And then they go home and dad says, that guy's an idiot. Uh-huh. Or that uh-huh. girl's an idiot. Don't listen to them. Here's what you got to do. And it just creates this huge problem. Well, dude, um, and the, the question, the preface of the question that Richard asked, let me read the last part of it. Um, 
you know, is swatting away a couple helicopter parents here just part of player development and low minors coaching life. Dude, sometimes it's part of major league life. It yeah. happens at the highest level where a, a father, a parent, you know what I mean? Like is in the mix and like a team actually has to like factor that in and like diplomatically handle it. Like For that sure. happens that even at the highest level, it's crazy. It really does. And like, you know, you draft a kid and he's from Florida and then you spring train in Florida and the parents are there every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's the, you, you know, the helicopter parenting is you can get in the way of a kid's instruction. It can also kind of get in the way of the kid's maturity. Mm-hmm. Like he needs to get a, it, it, he's an adult now. It's time to grow up, trying to, you know, be an adult and, and, and be responsible. And they still have, like you said, these helicopter parents. It's a, it's a big issue. Like if you ever want to, you can pick them out real quick. If you ever go to spring training, Forget about the big park. Go to the backfields. Mm-hmm. Um, look around. You'll pick them out real quick, real quick. Um, and I, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, in professional games like minor league spring training games, like parents getting way too emotional, like embarrassingly so, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like, look, this we can't do this. This is this is not little league anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a huge problem. It's not swatting away a couple helicopter parents a year. It's more like swatting away fifty of them. Right. Um, it's a lot of work for the, for the player development people and a real challenge at times to kind of get them to understand this is how we do things and you have to put away what you learned before. Believe me, there have been big league hitting coaches yeah. that have called the general manager and gone, how are we going to handle this parent? Yeah. Like that happens. For okay? sure. Like how are we going to keep them in, in this place where they're not like jumping in here and screwing up what we're trying to get, get done? And it's, you know, it is a a thing that we don't think about, but man, I know it's happened. I've seen it. It's a nightmare. I, I can think about a guy the Astros drafted and he had in high school, we drafted him out of high school. Um, he had a hitting guru and a lot of, there's a lot of these hitting gurus yep. here and most of them are, uh, are not gurus at all. Um, and that hitting guru was, showed up at this kid's minor league games and would literally stand near the dugout, watching him hit, yelling things at him between pitches. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It's like, like, what can you do here? I don't know what we can do here. And that's the thing. I've always been fascinated by that, that dynamic, right? Because you have a, you have a player that's playing for your organization. Yeah. And for X amount of time during the year, they're around your coaches, they're in your system. Then there's that period of time where they're not at all. Right. And like, you know, you have coaches that leave programs for them to follow, but Mm -hmm. good luck. Right. Because they've got all these influences. They're going home right? There's people from their past that are still involved probably, or they found a guru that you're talking about that might not see it the exact same way yeah. as your guys. Or, I mean, it gets really messy. And I've always wondered about like, how do you, you know, how do teams, what recourse can teams even have there? Because like, you know, these guys are still their own people, right? Like they're making decisions for their career. So yeah. They think guru X has got the answers for him. Like, what do you tell that guy? Right? And some of that stuff's like super organized and successful. Now and you think, you know, every year, every team deals with it. Like, you know, 20 pitchers come to him after the season. They go, Hey, I want to go to driveline. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the way driveline, what driveline t- teaches and, and the way they do things probably lined up the Venn diagram with the way the Astros did things probably overlap. 80, 80, 85%. Mm-hmm. But he still had to coach that other 15% out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, I, there are teams to ask kids not to go. Uh, the Astros were not one of those, but there are teams that are like, don't, please don't do that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and they, it's all these, there's so many external people. There's so many hitting gurus and pitching gurus. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are really good and a lot of them are grifters. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, yeah. re- it's a tough thing to deal with. Yeah. And like, and, you, and by the way, what makes it intriguing, like, because people, you hear this and you're just like, well, how could you not spot the morons? Like, think about this. You, you This is your career. Yeah. Right? Like, you're, you are, if you're a major leaguer or want to be a major leaguer, the, the assumption's already that you're one of these uber competitors that's going to do whatever it is you got to go do. Right? It's the reason we spent 45 minutes talking about sticky stuff. Right. All right? Because there's, you have to understand that part of this. There's a desperation. Uh, involved in this so when someone tells you and says it convincingly hey i've got the answers for you you're all ears yeah and some of the and, and some of the I mean, some, even some of the grifters are, are guys who like have some sort of resume mm-hmm. like oh shit that guy played two years in the big leagues like he's gonna he can he, he, he can help he'll know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and they uh, yeah the, the 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 world of of private instruction is, is a real nightmare for the world of player development uh, Farting comes from John and, and Mark, I, you, you can relate to this from your previous lives. Uh, and he writes, Hey KG, when you were on the road, what was your go-to road trip? Good order after watching a game. Um, when you travel as much as, as you did, Mark and I did, you, you have to eat like shit sometimes. Um, <laughs> so it changed a lot. So in 2018, I came home from the draft at my heaviest ever. I was almost 240. Um, and my wife was starting keto. And I said, well, I'll do that because I don't want to live in a house where we're cooking separate dinners every night. And I lost like 40 pounds. Wow. Um, and so I stuck with it and I still stick with it. In a, I, I do what's called lazy keto. where I, Here's things I don't eat, but I don't count anything. I can eat whatever I want. I just don't eat these things. Mm-hmm. Um so my go-to order on keto uh, after a game was to find a Wendy's and to get a double cheeseburger with no bun and a side Caesar salad. Oh, there you go. That was that was my that's my keto go-to because and, and it's tough because I mean obviously at times you know on the road like you're seeing like college players or high school players and you suddenly find yourself in the middle of nowhere. Right, you're in smaller towns. I was just yeah, saying, yeah, and so like you don't really have like a, a great great options all the time and so usually it's often you know the game's over at 10 30 and what's open um so a lot of fast food and and the, that wendy's combo got me through plenty of of nights and in, in strange places and like rural north carolina and things like that <laughs> um i mean obviously you know as a beat writer i assume you would do media dining before the game yeah well look we were leaving the park too late to go eat like right. you're not i'm not you know uh, I wasn't going out and having full-blown meals at midnight. And that's when you were walking out of the park, oftentimes, 11.30 to midnight. So, you know, I guess, like, to slightly alter the question but get to the same point, there were certainly places that I will miss because they were regular spots. So, you know, um, there's a, oh, my God, blanks on me. Um, I'm blanking on it. A place in Miami, Southern Food. Um, You know, it it was on South Beach. Mm they have a location now in Vegas. Uh, that was like one that, you know, every time through. Like that, right. that was automatic. We were going there. So that's, you know, Salumi in Seattle. Um, you know, it was uh, a quick walk from Safeco Field. It was between like the downtown area where everybody stayed and the ballpark. It was mm-hmm. right in between. Absolutely perfect. Best sandwiches ever. So yeah, man, we go on and on. Like there, there are some awesome places in big league cities, as you can imagine. 
but um, you know, Yardbird was the name in Miami. So Yardbird and Saloon oh, I've heard of stand that, yeah. out to me. Yeah, like and and we could go on and on, but those were my two that I'll probably miss the most. And for a lot of places, I just found this out the, the other day, like media dining's is still kind of up in the air because of the pandemic. Like they're kind of just offering a box lunch in a lot of places and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know what? Like I'll tell you what I miss about media dining. Sitting with the scouts. Yeah, for sure. Dude, you That's the time you, to catch up with people. You, you, yeah. you get your meal and you go, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, absolutely. Have a seat, catch up on life, learn about the sport, see what they're seeing, they're hearing what you're seeing. Like it was, you know, yet another reason why I'm, I'm very happy that uh, the world's kind of inching back to normal and that hopefully those interactions happen again. Did you find over your, over your decade plus as a beat writer, um, which really just ended recently, like that like you saw fewer and fewer scouts at big league games. Yes, it sucked. Like it was awful. I, you yeah. know, I remember when I first started, man. Like you'd walk in there at six o'clock, right, an hour before a typical game. There's a, a room set aside usually to, to serve the people in the press box, and like so, the scouts would be up there before they're down in their seats. Mm-hmm. There'd be like two or three tables of these guys. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, they'd been in the game forever. Like they had a lot to teach you. They had opinions. You could talk to them. You know, you, you would just basically learn some stuff right. pretty much every day. And by the time, you know, at the end, you know, every now and again, you'd have that turnout again, where it was like two pe- two tables full of scouts. But more often than not, it was like two or three. Right. You know, and like and then the faces changed. Right. Like you used to see some guys are kind of older, like been around like. By the time that, you know, 2019 is the last time I was around the parks, obviously, before the pandemic, like, man, the scouts were all like my age, a lot of them younger, mm-hmm. right? And like, and that's not to say they didn't know what they're doing, obviously, no, no, you no. can be that age and do know what you're doing. It was just different, right? Like, you, and then, so their sensibilities were different. Like, half the time they were scared to talk to you, frankly, right? right. right? Because they're like, they're probably young in, in, the, in the industry. This is their big break. And like they're paranoid that like if their GM or their scouting director catches wind that he's chopping it up with reporters, like it, you know, they're terrified it's going to get back to him. Right. When right. really that this has just been sort of how the sport has been forever. I mean, my favorite things like, you know, being a reporter is like the relationships that you build over time, the trust that you build over time, and like, you know, I have fond memories of being in like spring training in Port St. Lucie, and, and you know just hanging out with the scouts there and like a lot of times the conversations are literally just like hey man this is this thing happened i don't understand it do you right you know and like it was so much fun so i mean you talked about them being you know at times real real reticent to talk to you um do you did you feel like over those 10 years just like even just overall baseball operations groups became more locked down oh you know the answer to this of course but is it, is it course. way more yes way more okay absolutely way more there there are some places where they won't tell you the time of day right right and like uh, so whatever i mean like things change right things evolve and like and that's not to say that everyone's like that because that's not the case either but i think you encountered more of that fear by the end right than at the beginning you know like you could still like you know early on you just like have rando conversations with people and like you'd have to tell them you know, hey, dude, like, man, I'm not writing this, right? You know, right. <laughs> like, you, you, like, just make them be clear. And now it's like, you know, if they get back to you at all, like, it's stilted and guarded. Right. And, and, you know, like, I get it. I understand. So I don't blame folks per se for that. I just wish it wasn't as prevalent because I think, you know, most of the time that you're trying to call somebody as a reporter, like, this is my experience anyway, 
dude, I'm not necessarily after state secrets. I just want to understand this so that I can help the people who are reading this understand it. That's it. Right, right, right. And it's it's interesting in that um, I, I did a piece recently and I talked to some people and, and told them all I was quoting them anonymously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could still hear the one of them like it's good. And he goes, well, let me craft something for you. Yeah, he's still crafting a quote right. for me, even though it's going to be anonymous. I'm like, just talk right. freely here. You know, I, I told you I'm not going to use your name. Uh, it was such a strange thing. And a lot of the, everyone's so good. Like, the Astros were very locked down with the media. Mm-hmm. They were, yeah, like you said, I, time of day would be lucky. Yeah. Um, I always yeah. talk to people, but whatever. But people were guarded. And like, like I said, I, I don't blame them, right? Like at the end of the yeah. day, you have to remember if you're, you know, on our side of things and like you're talking to folks, these are folks with life, they, they're trying to make a, a life for themselves too. You know, they got a right. job that they worked really hard to go get and they don't want to do anything that looks like, you know, that might potentially jeopardize. And I get it. It's just, I think maybe it speaks to how the, the industry evolved itself because like there was a time in this sport where there were lifetime appointments and you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Right. Like, I mean, it was like the Supreme Court. Once you got in, you were in. And it's because you knew enough people or you were connected with the owner or for any number of reasons. And like, and the people who were around for a long time, they kind of had their own little crews, right? Like there was somebody, there was somebody in the middle of that little clique that was carrying the group. And right. so when they moved, they moved, these other guys moved too. So right, there was right. some of that. And like, look, that doesn't exist as much anymore. And, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, right? Because sometimes it was people that, you know, frankly, were grifters. All right. Like just they're, they're kind of like engagement in the game had like waned through the years and they, they just kind of hung on out of association. Well, right, right. That doesn't happen anymore. But like, you know, what also doesn't happen anymore are the folks who, you know, were engaged and were bringing something different. And it, it sucks to see that some of those folks are getting caught in this. Right. Right. Like, they, like those folks are not in the press box, in the scout seats anymore. And, you know, I, I don't think the game is better off for it, frankly. You know, we're talking to Jerry Blevins, right? Like, right. you still need people that are going to push back and say, I don't give a shit what StatCast says, right? This guy gets people out, Yeah. period. Sign his ass. Give him a shot, right? Like, the, we, I think you just have to look differently always at some level, right? It was, remember, like, back in the day, the, the, the people, like, who were pushing hard on the analytical side of things were getting drowned out. Right. By people that wouldn't see it a different way. And now we look it's all reversed. these years later and it's like the same enemy. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not like, I think what we, what's happened, the game is better than it's ever been in a lot of ways because of, of the way you can, these tools, you can now understand what's going on better and like predict some of it or some element of it. But like, you know, we, we can't lose that appreciation for seeing it from a different lens. And when I see, we were talking about scouts, and how their numbers have thinned, it tells me we have lost some of that. And that's really unfortunate. Who had the best media dining? Oh, Philadelphia. Who had Frank. the worst? What? Oh, the who'd, worst? Who had the worst? Oh, the worst. Oh, man. Oakland's probably in there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Who do you got on that? I always thought the Yankees had good media dining. Yeah, Yankees. Were, dude, the Yankees, when they opened that ballpark, it was borderline unethical because they charge you like twelve dollars. Yeah, right? and that was a fifty dollar meal. Because it, it so what happened? What was like the they had lobster they, in the playoffs, dude. That, and people still talk about that shit, like because they started legends, right? They had, they started their own hospitality wing in partnership with the Cowboys, 
So they were basically just going all out. You got to make a great first impression. Now in the in the subsequent years, it's dialed back. It's still yeah. in the upper like third, I would say. But it wasn't like walking into like you know. I mean, it was like <laughs> we were paying twelve dollars again for like a easily a fifty dollar meal. And I remember every single day going, "This feels weird." <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to Philly. What's so good about Philly? Frank. Frank serves the the ice cream in Philadelphia. He's like one of the nicest people in baseball, dude. Like he's great. And also like their food's always good. The staff Mm. is tremendous. It's a great setup to just sit there. There's a lot of TVs, a lot of tables, super comfortable. They get it done right. Like they're, they're tremendous. They're the gold standard in my opinion. Like there's, so not only is the food good, right? But like just the atmosphere in there, the setup is really neat. And by the way, um, because of where it's located, like I, for whatever reason, like I always saw like the Scots I liked there. Right. Right. So that maybe that I'm biased in that regard too. That I saw a lot of friendly faces, but yeah, the folks that work in that dining room and the food and stuff, man, they're, they're awesome. Ask any national leaguer. Okay. Like anyone that you spend time covering national league teams, like I, I guarantee you, you're going to get like 75% saying Philadelphia is number one. Nice. Um, it's time to catch up with Mark. Mark, you were a beat writer, like I said, for more than a decade. Um, you went to the athletic initially to, as the Yank to cover the Yankees, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, from there you became more of a national writer. Mm-hmm. And then recently you became a person with a title that has a comma in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or in February, 2021, you became the deputy managing editor, comma, talent development. That's it. What do That's you do it. for a living? All right. So the, the baseball equivalent would be roving instructor. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's like, uh-huh. you know, basically I've been coaching people one-on-one, um, and running the gamut from some of our like newest writers or people that are really new to the business to folks who are national writers and are great and, you know, are looking for ways to do what they're doing a little bit better or a little bit different to just sort of push in some area what they're doing. So... Um, you know, and, and besides that, like I've been developing, you know, clinics, programs, you know, educational opportunities within the company. So let's say, you know, Zoom calls, like people, people in the media have been sick of Zoom calls for a year. Yeah. You know, I was doing clinics on, okay, how do we make something out of those Zoom calls, right? Like how do you reframe your, your experience so that you're actually getting something of use from it? Um, because by and large, you aren't as a report it's really difficult so it's been stuff like that and you know it's very different obviously from what i was doing you know and i loved what i was doing by the way it wasn't like i was running from it or whatever i I just think in the back of my mind i'd always kind of had this desire to try something a little bit different in my career um you know and i remember being on the beat you know in the later years and then when i moved over the national side of things you know, I'd be driving home from the park and, you know, two out of three times, someone at the company, another up here was calling, right? Right, right. And they'd be like, hey, you know, this thing went down in my clubhouse. I've never seen anything like it. Have you? What would you do? Mm-hmm. Right? Like just talking about like, the you know, covering the game, right? Like, and so it. I remember just thinking like how much fun those conversations were, especially when they were some of the folks that we had on staff that were younger that were maybe seeing this stuff for the first time or, or unsure of what to do or how to kind of go about it. And, 
I was like, man, maybe it would be fun to kind of do that, get into management, help, you know, help people that want the help, right? Set up opportunities for them to get better, be a resource for them, but then also be somebody who's helping to, you know, make decisions, right? Like, who are we going to hire? Like, who, who should we be looking at? How should we be covering things? Like, to have some voice in that. So I think, you know, that, I, man, I miss writing a lot, you know, and like I've done it on occasion, and but certainly not what it was. Um, I miss the interactions at the park. I miss, you know, talking to baseball people because, you know, my favorite part of this is learning. And when, you, when you're at it long enough, like you have a pretty decent group of people to go to to learn some things. So right. I miss a lot of that, but... I also feel, you know, this has been a lot of fun and it's, you know, whenever you're learning something totally new, I think at least for me, it just, there's an element of fun to that. That is uh, it's hard to match with something that, you know, you've done for a long, long time. So in that regard, it's been a lot of fun. So, I mean, obviously you're at the athletic and, and the athletic in a lot of ways is kind of playing a big role in redefining what it sports media means um, on a smaller level without kind of, I don't know, giving away the master plan here. Um, <laughs> like, what does baseball media as a whole need to do better? And, and like, and like, what is the next thing here? You know, I, there's a lot of different directions to that, but I, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll raise one thing that I think is going to be really relevant covering labor, covering the CBA negotiations. Mm-hmm being more vigilant about discerning spin from information, right? Like I think you, you have two sides here with massive stakes that are going to do whatever it takes to win at that table. And I think as a group, right, like we all as baseball media um, have a responsibility to be as educated as we can to cover that as fairly as we can. And we know historically in the sport, that hasn't been the case, okay? Like it's always been tilted towards ownership. It's always been tilted towards the money. Like, you know, who's controlling the sport? Like, my goodness, it wasn't, you know, a couple gener- it was a couple generations ago now, but like, you know, there was a house organ literally that, you know, in the sporting news where they set the agenda and the owners were essentially writing it. Mm-hmm. So, well, what do we have now in this day and age, right? Like, let's think about who's covering the sport and, you know, who's got business relationships with the league and who doesn't. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm not so like, you know, there's some old school people in in the business where it's like, well, any relationship's terrible. I, I don't think that. But I do think like you have to factor in what voices you're listening to and, and you know, that needs to be a part of the dialogue, right? And like I think also for people who are, you know, independent media voices, like this is a this is gonna be a really important time, okay? To be able to cover this thing with with clear eyes and fairness is hugely, hugely important. So I say that because it's coming, right? Like that's relevant. We're gonna be talking a year from now, it is still gonna be talked about, right? Oh, yeah. like winter time, like all of it. It's gonna be it's gonna take over the sport in the way that sticky stuff is like this is one tenth of what it's gonna be. Sticky stuff is one tenth of the of the shitstorm that is coming. And and how, but how much do you balance reporting the news of this, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and and not 
they, uh, this is tough. Like there's 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 reporters and there's columnists, right? Like, mm-hmm. like how much? How do you try to balance just reportage and having a voice in yourself if you think one side is wrong? See, so like that's interesting. Like the the way you frame that question puts the onus on the on the reporters to balance that. And like and while that's true, I think obviously there's going to be responsibility there. I think this is a shared responsibility too. I think this is where the readers, right? Like and the people that listen to this, the people that read fan graphs, like I mean they're a pretty sophisticated group, so this is not necessarily like aimed at them specifically, but I think in general, right? Like there, there probably is going to have to be a little more sophistication from the people consuming this stuff. Mm-hmm. To un- like, you know, you should understand, right? When, when person X is saying this thing, ask yourself why, right? And like a lot of times the answer is going to be, well, you know, maybe they've got a tie in there of some kind or whatever. Like, and I think those are fair questions to ask. And, you know, it'll help your understanding of what is going on if you, if you make that a factor in your thinking. You, you can't just read it and take it at you know, total face value. I think context is always important, but I think it's particularly crucial here. Um, so yes, like I think that's something where if you care enough to consume this stuff, right, you ought to know that um, there's this added piece of context to put in there too. Is it the reporter's responsibility to tell you if something someone's saying is spin if they if they think it is so that's or do, or do they right? have to, or like, do they or do they have to say hey this is spin and here's facts to show you that this is spin and, yeah. and, and a manipulation of, of of what's actually happening so this is man you want to talk about like a big picture question right after especially after what's gone in the larger picture of this country yeah all right like because what you're essentially asking is if someone's lying can you just say they're a liar Right? Like, that's kind of what you're saying. So, I think, yeah. Like, I, you know, but some of, like, whether you believe that person or not gets back to credibility. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that's something I wish were taken a little more seriously. Because it feels like if you throw some shit out there and it's something that someone wants to hear, they're going to run with it. They're going to believe it. Because it's what they want to hear. It's already, or it's at least, it kind of reinforces what they already thought. So, in fairness, like that's a really tough environment to operate if you're trying for credibility. Okay, um, but I, I mean, here's a good rule of thumb, and I, and I say this because my brother texted me a tweet from somebody, and I don't want to give it away because I don't want to embarrass this person or take a shot or whatever. But like, it was something like this person made like a pretty like incredible allegation about something, and my brother was like, "Is there any truth to this?" Okay, now. I've heard of this person, but I don't know them. Right. Okay. And it's like, my rule of thumb is if you're someone that can put some shit out there and there's no consequences for you professionally, I'm probably not going to believe you. Because you have nothing to lose. Whereas if someone who had been in it, you know, has, has some credibility, has a name, has a voice, you know, somebody that you'll, you'll read and like believe and they're saying it, well, that's a whole different ballgame because they got something to lose. So I think we've gotten to this point, especially like baseball Twitter, baseball social media, where so long as it's interesting, you might buy it, where really what we should be thinking is, hey, man, if that person has nothing to lose, I'm going to be really, really skeptical until I hear it from somebody who does have something to lose, right? Um, 
and I, I just feel like we're going to get off to the wrong start already in the sense that the way it's been explained to me is that when the CBA expires, which is going to happen, mm-hmm. um, the owners will lock out the players and it will not be an act of aggression. It will not. Mm-hmm. It's just how this, it's just how the process works. It, like, mm-hmm. it is, it's just the paperwork filing. Yep. And um, I'm, I'm perfectly fine saying aloud that, that, you know, in this upcoming CBA, I'm I'm certain that on the majority, overwhelming majority of issues, I was I side with the players. Mm-hmm. But that's going to come off. It's going to be oh, the owners locked out the players. What a bunch of assholes! When it was really, it wasn't even an option. It was their own. It was it was. It's just how the process works. It wasn't. They they did not have an option not to lock out the players. The mm-hmm. second the CBA expires, the players are locked out. This is how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's already going to start off being look what the asshole owners did when it simply was. Look what the process did. Right, and see, we were talking earlier about you know, like you covering a labor negotiation. Like there's a certain amount of education that goes into it, I think, and that's a great example right there. Like to be able to put it into proper context, like that's the kind of shit that you got to know, right? And like Mm. level with your readers with, like, look, this looks like this, but this is what it is. This is part of the process. And, you know, and like I think what's happened in the past when I've looked back, because I've done stories, right, like about the strike. And so I've read pieces and, and, uh, you know, uh, retroactively, right, looking back of people covering labor stoppages or whatever. And sometimes from those articles, you can sense a lack of like understanding of, of, of the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Right, because it's kind of its own thing. Labor law is complicated. It's complicated, exactly. And like, you know, you also, man, you never have the full picture, right? Like, you just never have the full picture. So, you're trying to have to cover this thing, knowing that like there are parts of the puzzle you're not going to see or understand. That's hard. Do you? I mean, do you ever feel like it's unfair to, especially you now that you're a suit? Um, <laughs> To like tell your writer, hey, you gotta really, you're a baseball writer. Um, you really, you need to hone up on labor law for what's coming. <laughs> I know, right? Like that's, but you know what? Like that's you. You end up having to, you end up having to learn some shit you didn't expect if you're doing the job properly, anyway. Right? right? You gotta because learn, we could learn, have said gotta learn about, some chemistry. Well, yeah. Right, yeah, right. At this point, right, or even before, like you know. It, if you don't understand the fundamentals of analytics now and you're a baseball writer, um, you are not doing your job even remotely close to as well as you should be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that simple. If, if, if the teams are making their decisions and a lot of it is based baseball. on these concepts. Well, it is, but like it's also, I mean, is regression analysis baseball? Right is understanding like yeah. variance. No, it's not. In yeah. a way, no, right? I, like, we're I, no, talking... no, I'm saying yeah, I agree with you. I yeah. understand. What you're saying, right, yeah. it's a you have to like look at it from a scientific point of view now. Right, like what what do you actually believe that the difference between causation and and correlation and and all this stuff like it's a different mindset, it, especially like maybe we forget because things change so fast. But do you remember the freaking world of baseball when all of this first started coming out? All too well. Holy shit, right? Like we weren't talking about understanding new concepts. We were talking about a whole new way of thinking. Like the idea of fucking bias, right? Like Mm -hmm. that was just, I mean, something as basic as that, yet pushed back on. 
okay? Where clearly, if we look at it, you know, years later, like bias played a huge role in how we evaluated players. Right. Okay? Like a huge role. And like, but if you were to say that out loud, even when I started, people would be looking at you like side-eyeing you, right? Like, the fuck are you talking about? So it, yes, like I think... To get back to it, right? Being a reporter, like the assumption is you're going to have to learn some stuff. So why is labor different from, you know, statistical analysis? I I, I talked to to our mutual friend C Trent ah yep. about this subject, and and I I like your thoughts on. Do we still need game stories? Ooh. Um, so I, he argued that like you know like the newspaper is the paper of record, and you need game stories. Um. My basic belief is that by the time I go to bed, I know every game story. So, right? I know. Yeah. I know mm-hmm. what happened last night. I don't. Do I need a game story? Is is the game story dead? And should be people be writing around the games as opposed to about the games? So here's my answer is both, because and this is actually something I talk about a lot now with the writers that I work with. When I was on the beat covering baseball i looked at it like you were writing a book about that season Mm. so you're developing characters you are signaling to readers when hey this is a really important time right like this shit is something you got to know sometimes it was apparent right like you'd go to the park some shit would go down you're like that's obviously a a night to write and there are other times where you're like it's a seventh inning Dude, nothing of long-term import happened in this right. game. Right, they're they're nothing. winning. They're winning five to two, and it's nothing right. interesting happened. Right, yeah. they're, they're they're five and fucking five in the last ten games. They're just treading. Nothing happened. So, like, I, in that instance, if you weren't at a newspaper, to me, yeah, you don't need a gamer that day. But to say that you don't need gamers at all, I don't. I I can't go there because there are nights where you just do. Right, something happens. You learn something really important about that team that night. That so might it, have import going forward. You gotta write it. Is a fair answer then? You don't need you don't need 162 gamers. That's it. I don't think you need 162 gamers because you don't have 162 games that are news. Right. Right. Like you just don't. But you know what I don't like about the blanket statement of gamers are obsolete. I'll tell you what's bullshit about that. All right. Even if you've seen the game already, if it's something you're really invested in, you know what I found people love to do: relive it. Yeah. So when the Mets were, you know, New York goes crazy when the Mets are good. And I was fortunate when I covered them, they were really good for a couple of those years. Really interesting, really compelling. And the stories that blew up besides breaking stuff or like getting into the nitty gritty and inside the clubhouse stuff was like when, when it was high stakes, a pennant race, playoffs, whatever, and you'd write a game story that like captured the mood, captured the feeling. Oh, man. Like I would get, that's when the emails would come mm-hmm. and, and they would thank you. The readers would be like, man, that was great. Like it was so cool to be able to read it and feel all those things again. Don't tell me we don't need gamers. Okay. I will tell you that. <laughs> don't, don't get mad. I will not have the ass today <laughs> anymore. So what, what, what do we need more of in baseball coverage? To know that is a great question. You know what we need more of? We need people, you know, and this has been hard. And I think this is why the baseball coverage of the last year has been kind of miraculous that it hasn't been terrible because of the access issues. Right. 
But you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see people that are really good at building relationships and have no problem challenging what they see. Yeah. That's what I want to see. Right? Like when a manager goes up there and says some stupid bullshit cliche to explain a very questionable decision. It would be nice if more reporters were like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Just just say it. Mm-hmm. Right? Challenge them. They're they're grown-ups. They're getting paid a lot of money to do this job. It's okay to scrutinize them. It's the same with the players. You know, there's a difference between being belligerent, right, and being skeptical. And what I would like to see more of is that practical skepticism to challenge the shit that we see and to do it well and to do it more frequently. Um, you know, the, to me, like, that's the, when you get really good coverage of anything, that's where you want to be. That sweet spot between... You know, you, you're going to call people out on stuff, but you're also not going to be obnoxious because it's not for attention, right? You're calling them out because, like, that's what you have to do. James Fegan, our White Sox writer, if you don't know his work, get to know his work. Yeah. He, James is great at this. He asked, he asked LaRusso frequently fair and challenging questions. Yes. Th- to me, that is what we need more of. We need people on beats and, like, Here's what it's easier said than done, right? Because I mean, there are I, some beat writers who are kind of stooges, right? Uh, there's, you know, like in anything else, in any profession, there are some folks that, like, you know, like, want to look at them, like, oh, I wish they could be better, whatever. But, mm. like, I think that the biggest thing to me that I've seen that we're getting away from is that it's it, this idea that it's okay to challenge these folks, right? Like, it, you know what? It's healthy, it's good. Right? Like, in the same way that, like, I never lost sight of the fact that, like, if the Mets were playing like crap, the readers were pissed. And they wanted answers. And I was going to try to get it to them. And what's happened more often than not is that people that are around it every day think that their job is to, like, you know, justify whatever it is a GM is doing. Yeah. Like, oh, well, unwashed masses don't understand this. Let me explain how this works. And they come off as condescending and more and worse, they're fucking bootlickers. Right? Like, we need the opposite. It's why I enjoy James's coverage, and I'm naming him, singling him out, because he's got a really difficult scenario there where LaRusa is a challenge, right? Like, that's, there's a lot of nuance involved in that situation. Yeah. And what I see from James every day is a smart reporter that is embracing that and trying to do it fairly. And, man, it's really, really impressive because it's hard to do. Um. I want to like change up just a little bit, but this still goes to the future of sports writing. Um, it's more of a diversity question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as much as it used to be, but it's still an overwhelmingly white dude business. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do about that? Mm. Uh, a lot. That's a lot. There's a lot in there. I, I think if it like to me, the magic bullet is to like start to think about where we're looking for talent, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think that's in everything. If we were to talk about baseball, it'd be the same way, right? Like, we got a yeah. bunch of white kids from the suburbs. All the American players are white kids from the suburbs or from the South, okay? So then you start to look at, like, the mechanism that's in place to identify talent, and you start looking for inefficiencies there, right? So here's one inefficiency that I see on the journalism side of it. Well, you go get journalists from journalism school, well, who can afford journalism school? Who's in journalism school? White kids from the suburbs. Okay. So then what do you do? And my thing is that when I see journalism, now let's look over the last 50, 60, 70 years. 
journalism went from almost like an apprenticeship kind of thing where you learned in the field. Like there were times where I worked for people that didn't graduate from college, didn't go to college. Right. Okay. Yet they were helping to run a newsroom. Okay. And then as kind of the world evolved a little bit, it became a much more academic pursuit. Right. At least it saw itself that way. And so now you had to go to journalism school or have a college degree to get in the business. Right. And so it fundamentally changed, I think, who got in it. Right. So like we're talking about diversity, oftentimes we're talking about race. But you know what another part of diversity is here? Where are like the lower class people, like maybe lower middle class folks in journalism? There aren't any KG. Okay. What we have in this business is not only, you know, a racial and, and gender issue. But like what I find is that like even the life experience of the people that wind up in press boxes are almost exactly the same. They're upper middle class. Okay. Because if you can afford to send your kid to journalism school, a profession in which you might not make any money, well, who can afford to do that? People with money. Okay. So then, then you go look at journalism schools only. And what are you going to get? The same. You're going to get the same. So to me, it's like, all right, if you really want to diversify this thing, like I'd be looking for folks that want to change careers midstream. Mm -hmm. How do you build an infrastructure for them to say, okay, come in here. You're going to learn some of the basics of the craft and then we'll figure it out. Right? Like that is the way you mix it up. Right? Cause now you got people who might be a little bit older, like they're a little more secure. They can take a risk and chances are maybe they're different, man. Like mm -hmm. they're just a different background, different mindset whatever um you know if you want to look for people that are different don't look at the journalism school okay like to me it's like i mean in baseball right like when you're looking for talent like if someone's really talented you'll figure out where they're going to play right like if they can hit you'll figure right. out where to play them same in journalism if they're smart you'll figure out how they're going to be a writer somewhere like you'll figure out what they're going to cover you can teach them how to write you can teach them the basics of the craft Mm -hmm. But what you can't teach him is smart and curious in the same way that you can't teach like straight up talent of hitting a baseball or anticipation, right? You, you don't necessarily teach that. Like, so this is what I wish would happen is that the industry would think a little bit broader about where they're getting talent, right? And, and, and being a little more proactive about that rather than just going to the same well and then asking the same questions, which is, hey, why does it always feel the same? So if you don't need to go to journalism school to find your talent, is journalism school kind of bullshit? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I don't think it's bullshit. That's that's probably the bridge too far, too. I just don't think it's the only way. Right. And I think we, we've seen that. You know, one of the beautiful things about, like, we're talking about baseball media, right, with the rise of the internet and sites like Fangraphs and baseball perspectives, et cetera. Like, I mean, these are places that are giving voices to folks that wouldn't have gotten a sniff the traditional way. And right. that's a great thing. That is an awesome, and we can all agree on that, right? Like it has added something. We there are voices in the sport now that weren't. There are people who do that. not agree with that. What? What? Yeah, there are people who do not agree with that. I do not agree with them because, like, the more voices, the better. And like, frankly, it was a good thing. Okay, like some. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm a newspaper person at heart. Okay, like I that's I am old school in that. I came up through newspapers. I was an intern at newspapers. I learned this craft at newspapers i saw a lot of lazy stupid bullshit at newspapers of course 
Okay, what, and that, that is the product of a world in which, think about this, this is also a crazy concept now. Like you could just write whatever the fuck you wanted and never hear a damn thing about it. Because all you have to do is not open your mail, mm-hmm. right? Or if you saw the voicemail blinking in your office phone, which you checked once a month, you just delete it before you heard it. So you could just operate this way, say fuck you to everybody and just write whatever the hell you want. And what happened when communication became two-way, when you could send a tweet that was snarky or send an email back and say, yeah, you're an idiot. Some people couldn't handle that. And some people got better. And you know what? It's a good thing. Mm. <laughs> That's a good thing. You know, No one should have a monopoly on how something is perceived. And for the longest time, newspapers were that monopoly right Right. that's and 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 you know in a world by the way in which the communication was only one way and now it's not i actually think it's better it's harder i think it's actually a higher bar for a reporter for a writer you're sticking your neck out and there's more people to take a swing at it right but i think that makes it better and it makes you think twice about the shit you're trying to write and that's good too do you miss tweeting a lot no (laughs) <laughs> no i don't i don't and it's funny my wife's like you should keep a hand in it because like you're still watching games and yeah. like, but like at the same time like i don't you know it's almost a respect to the readers kind of thing if i'm watching it every day and i got opinions that are informed i'm going to share them but i don't watch it at that level anymore mm-hmm. not the it's not quite the same and I'm not going to insult these people that have followed and are interested in, 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 and by doing kind of a halfway sort of like, it's almost like I'm, I'm not a fan per se, right? Like I'm not like all the way back as that, but you know, I'm certainly not doing this every day anymore and covering the sport every single day and being completely immersed in it. And so if it's not going to be that, then I, you know, frankly, like I, you don't need to hear from me. Except for my stupid bullshit when I get bored sometimes, I guess. But other than that, like, no. Like, that. that's that's for other people that are seeing this every day and that have thoughts that are a lot more nuanced than mine. Right. Um, okay. That was a good discussion. <laughs> Boy, that veered a little bit, man. Welcome to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, time for a moment of culture, Mark. Well, I would say we watched a This Is Us finale like a, a, a month later, but like, you know, that's, uh, you know, I don't know how cultural it is to cry a lot. So I'm going to say, you know what's been good about being home, dude? I have discovered that gardening is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Like, You're no, a gardener for, now? No, like, okay, like landscape design and like, so we went to the Philadelphia Flower Show, right? I took my three-year-old daughter who loves flowers. My wife is a gardener. And like, I might have had the most fun of the three of us. So, this is amazing. Um, dude, it is amazing, man. Lilies are the shit. Okay. Don't let anyone tell you anything else. Um, but like, yeah, man, like it, it's surprise. Like it is really cool to be surprised by things. I think I've said that a few times. And like, that is a, a hell of a thing to be surprised by is that over the last like two or three months, um, my wife has dragged me into the vortex of caring about plants and I am fucking all in. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting there deciding about which bushes to hide the foundation of the house with, right? Like having like fucking spirited debates, pulling out brochures, doing like online fucking research. And it's like, this is awesome. Hell, why not? So I'm a full embrace of that. I don't know if that fits within culture, but. I think it does. I think you need to have a thing. 
Yeah, it's become a thing. This is your thing. It's become a thing. It's and it's uh, fun because it was completely unexpected. I didn't know shit about that three months ago, and like now I'm like looking at like, oh no, is this is this gonna be seasonal interest or is this gonna like when is this gonna bloom? And <laughs> it's like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, I my wife does garden, and I will go with her to the garden and the flower place and the plant place and. Everyone's all go. That thing looks cool, and she'll go. Okay, and we'll get one of those. But that's 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 the end of my involvement. <laughs> Dude, now we're just like, I don't know if there's enough light in that spot for this. Ugh, yeah. Like it's hilarious, man. Like and I, and sometimes I catch myself. What the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> yeah, I do get some of that. I, I get that sometimes. Oh, that plant looks cool. Well, we we got a plant in light. Oh, okay. <sighs> yeah, no, it's a cool thing though. That's what I got. What do you got? Are Are you growing any any edible things? No, no, we have not graduated to that yet. I mean, we're looking at ways to try to get some fresh herbs in here um, to do that. Yeah, we do. We do basil and peppers and cayenne peppers. Ooh, yeah, basil is so useful. Isn't it so nice to have there? Yeah, and it grows like a weed. It's yep, great. Totally, because I like to cook too. So like that. Yeah. That, that kind of like intersects, and so you know, we'll we'll figure that out. That's kind of next on the agenda here. So that was gardening hour. On the <laughs> this is and it's like NPR on, on Sunday right. morning now. We'll just uh, talk like this. Yeah, Welcome NPR. back to NPR. It's gardening hour with Mark yes. Carey. We're talking about we're talking about sticky balls. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. Exactly. God, <laughs> how has Saturday Night Live not brought that back yet? Yeah, sticky balls. Maybe yes. it's because they're creatively bankrupt. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to be a little more more higher brow. Maybe not. Gardening is highbrow. Um, so. I would call my wife and I film buffs and we both had this moment last in the last month where it's like, you know, I don't think we've ever seen a Tarkovsky film. And hmm. Tarkovsky was, this was a director, um, Russian who made movies in Russia, um, in, in communist Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, most of his stuff came in the sixties and seventies, um, including a couple things that are considered masterpieces, both, Kind of science fiction. One's very science fiction, um, but his most famous movies are is one called Stalker, um, and the other one is called Solaris. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so we watched these two movies, and and it was just that we had this amazing experience where so we watched Solaris, and Solaris is about two forty runtime, and it's about a guy, and he's a scientist, and they tell him, hey, there's some bad shit going down at the space station that's orbiting around Solaris. And he goes to the space station and there's some bad shit going on. Um, and it's amazing. And, um, but the bad shit going on is everyone on the space station is, is being visited by people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he goes to Solaris and he is visited as well by his late wife. Um, and so again, it's, this is very important. So it's two forty, right? Runtime it's, and it's, not a not a wasted second and then um i just kind of remembered it that this hollywood remade this movie with george clooney huh um and i was and i said well i've certainly never seen that um and it was in 2002 and like legit directors um uh steven soderbergh i believe Uh um yeah and we said oh we should watch that just to see what that's like oh god and the First thing that really struck me was that because, like, you know how it is when you stream things now, it tells you how long it is, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like an hour thirty-eight. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I was like, how are you going to fucking do that? <laughs> now I'm fascinated. Oh, God. It's not awful. Oh, it might even surprise. it might even be good. It's nowhere near the original, but it might, it's not a bad movie. But an but was, hour less, and it was it was solid, huh? They did it by cutting out one big chunk. Okay. So they didn't just cut, cut, cut. They, so like you know the the room like it's like here's the scientist. Hey dude, there's some shit going out. Solaris, you got to get over there. And then we spend like an hour learning about this scientist guy, right? Mm-hmm. The Hollywood version. George Clooney's a scientist. Hey George Clooney. There's this space station, some shit going on, and like cut to him going to space. Right, right. I see. Yeah. You know, um, and it was just kind of a, a remarkably, but I, I just, it was one of those things where I, I think everyone has their blind spots, even if you're uh, whatever you want to call it, an aficionado. And it's like, oh yeah, Tarkovsky. I've, I've, I've seen him speak and I've never seen any of his movies. Um, and so we got caught in this, but it was kind of amazing just to have the two. And the other thing was like this movie was made in Russia in the early seventies, like you know, under Brezhnev, um, and it's still more, it's still more visually interesting. Yeah, so I was gonna than, ask, a, than a two thousand two Hollywood version. Like so, first of all, speaking of visually interesting, you guys should wiki this thing. The movie poster is really cool um, for the Russian version. I don't know if you saw this KG. It's really cool. I'm googling um, now. Yeah, it's worth it. And also, okay. Like, I'm always curious when, you know, something that is organic to Soviet, you know, the Soviet Union in 1972. Right. Or 1968 or, yeah, 72. And then, you know, gets gets made in America, right? Like, decades later. Um, I, I wonder when you watch it, like, what sticks out is, like, where you can see the cultural differences, right? As far as just, like, you know, not even just in the filmmaking part of it. Right. But like even some of the the themes that they're going to explore, like what did you feel was like uniquely un-American, I guess, or like didn't, you know, wouldn't have resonated with like an American audience. Yeah. From that version. It wasn't uniquely Russian. Um, okay. Or certainly it wasn't uniquely Soviet, I guess would be the better way to put it. Like there was no like there was no like kind of a lot of there's a tons of Russian movies made in that time that are, you know basically propaganda films right um like and he was like so acclaimed internationally that they kind of let him go you know mm-hmm. uh yeah he wasn't certainly wasn't critical of of russia but it, like it, there was no sort of pro-communist propaganda or thing like that it's really just a science fiction film okay um i you know i you know it does have um i to speak as someone who comes partially from Russian stock, it does have the Russian um, misery to it. Okay. Um, it's it's you know it's a a dreadfully serious movie. Um, uh, and I think that. But if I if I showed you this movie, um, and told you it was, you know, and they spoke another language, and told you it was you know Bulgarian or something. You'd go okay. You, it's not. It's not uniquely Russian necessarily. I it might. See. It might be uniquely Eastern European. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not. It's not like there's no mention of, of the Soviet state or, or or you know communism or anything like that. As uh-huh. much as it's just and it's it's just strange. Like this guy because he was so acclaimed. Like he like kind of just it was Russia, so he's partially funded by the country to make these movies. But they kind of just let him go, huh? Because he was like this export that like other people. We're you know teaching in film class and things like that, as opposed to just got some guy making movies. 
That's interesting. Well, it did well at Cannes. Did you ever? There's a great documentary. I, need, I should find this. What was that Ray Raymond show? Everyone loves Raymond. Um, a sports writer at Newsday spoke to me. Um, <laughs> exactly. There's a great documentary about the guy who created that show. Um, so was his I, name Raymond? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, oh, it's called Exporting Raymond. I found okay. it. Okay. So the movie's called Exporting Raymond. And so, you know, obviously, when you get when you have a big hit, his name's Phil Phil Rosenthal. Um, that's who directed. No, I think that's him. Yeah, yes, Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everyone Loves Raymond. So you make a, if you have a big hit show like Everyone Loves Raymond, which is obviously a massive hit, um, people make it in other countries, right? Right. Just like I mean, you know, everyone people like love the, the people love The Office. The Office started in England, right? So they right. made an American version of The Office. But there's just like the same thing happens in other countries. Like there's an Italian version of Friends and a French version of Friends. Like people mm. bring the story. So anyway, um, Russian TV bought the rights to Everyone Loves Raymond. And he goes there to work with the Russian TV station to develop the Everyone Loves Raymond of Russia. Oh, wow. It's fucking amazing. Whoa, I'd, I'd check that out. I, I can't. I, I don't know where it's because streaming that, anymore, but it, it's amazing. That always fascinates me, like what gets lost in translation, but like also right. and they don't get the, the same. Right, and then the, the people there don't get the, the American humor at all. Right, and right. And so nothing translates, and it looks, it, it, it really does seem like it's out of a like out of a, a satire you would make about how Russian television works, but it's mm-hmm. real. Like they work in this like absolutely hideous, like brutalist architecture, like just concrete boxes where the studio <laughs> is um, like on old equipment. Everyone's very serious. Oh, like, and, and, and just like the casting is amazing. And you know, they hate this guy. They hate that guy. And like, well, he's funny. Like uh, they, they cast like the most serious people and it doesn't, it's, and it's just a disaster. It's hysterical. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm talking no, about like a cultural hilarious. fish out of water thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think we're done here, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks I can't thank you enough for host. joining me. No, no, it's it was nice to step out of semi-retirement for a little bit. Hey, back out of the now, you got to go back into the shadows. Back to the shadows, I go. <laughs> I'm still watching ball. So, dude, it was great. Do you have um, anything you want to plug now that you're in the shadows? Mm, yeah, subscribe to the athletic, theathletic.com. Um, but no, hopefully they'll at some point this soon. week they'll tweet a one dollar a week offer. It's That's guaranteed. <laughs> I guarantee it. Too. Just wait for the tweet. Yes. If yes. you want to subscribe, at some point, yes, they will tweet. As will most of their writers say, "Hey, if you want to read it, they've got a dollar a week offer." It happens every week. Yeah, there might be. You know, we only have sales on days that end in Y. So relax. Um, but, you know, other than that, like, you know, maybe maybe down the road there'll be something to plug. Um, been exploring some projects that could be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, man, read The Athletic. It's a good site. Subscribe. <laughs> thanks for coming on, Mark. Thanks again to Jerry Blevins. Thanks to our musical guest, Drunken Logic. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Alone in a man. Forever surrounded by herself It's painfully clear that this Is just who she has always been A living document The meaning endlessly revised She's not too big to fail
ever surrounded by herself It's painfully clear that this Is just who she will always be